You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. At the end of a century, ravaged by violence, a society of perfect order will arise. Criminals will be frozen and reprogrammed in cryogenic prisons. The prisoners are ice cubes. Their criminal instincts are being reprogrammed as they sleep. Aggression and deviant behavior will be totally eliminated. He's a criminal the likes of which you have never seen. In a bad time, he was the worst. I'm going to love running this place. But in the year 2032... This morning, Simon Phoenix escaped from this cryo-facility. We are, quite frankly, not equipped to deal with the situation. Amidst a world of peace and calm... We're police officers. We're not trained for this kind of violence. How was the fiendish Simon Phoenix apprehended back in the 20th? In the end, it took just one man. John Spartan. You mean the demolition man? The conditions of your parole are full reinstatement into the SAPD and immediate assignment to the apprehension of Simon Phoenix. Two mortal enemies. Just dropped in to say hi. From another time. Pass is over, John. Time for something new and improved. Oh, hell. Will be unleashed on a future that isn't big enough for the both of them. Sylvester Stallone. Wesley Snipes. Demolition Man. Mellow greetings, Projection Booth listeners. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Chris Bricklemeyer. Hello. Also joining us is Professor Laura Helen Marks. Hi, how are you? This week we are looking at the 1993 sci-fi action film Demolition Man. Directed by Marco Brambilla, the film stars Sylvester Stallone as hotshot supercop John Spartan when he's set up to look like a mass murderer by his nemesis Simon Phoenix, played by Wesley Snipes. The two are sent to a cryo-prison where they're put on ice until the distant future year of 2032, where Phoenix breaks out of jail and the namby-pamby cops of the future have no idea how to handle him. Of course, it's up to John Spartan to bring Simon Phoenix to justice once again. Of course, we're going to be getting into spoilers about this 25-year-old film, so if you haven't seen it, go watch it and come back. We will still be here. Chris, when was the first time you saw Demolition Man, and what did you think? I saw this opening weekend in the theater, and I hated it when I saw it. Really? Yeah, I wasn't um, sober, I guess would be the good word to say. And I was expecting something completely different. I did not get the action movie that I thought it was. And then I watched it uh, like a couple of months later once it hit um, home video. And I thought, wow, there's some really brilliant social commentary there. I was totally wrong. How about you, Laura? I was 12 when this came out. so <laughs> But I, I watched it on video. I think it was a, a rated 15 in England. So we were able to watch it on video and I went to like a sleepover and watched it there and I thought it was great. I saw this movie opening day, first showing. I was working at a movie theater at the time, so I had passes and I went to see it. 
I like this movie so much that that same night I came back and saw it a second time. I think this is the only movie I've ever seen twice on the same day at a movie theater. If that doesn't tell you how much I loved it, I guess you're just not paying attention. I really like this movie. And what the thing I liked about it so much was that it had the sci-fi, it had the humor, it had the action. And not only was it just regular old action, but this was 1993, and seeing Sylvester Stallone kind of fly sideways across the screen in slow motion with two guns blazing, I was like, this is finally echoing Hong Kong action. We're finally getting some Hong Kong action in the United States. And when Sandra Bullock name checks Jackie Chan instead of even Bruce Lee, I almost stood up and applauded. I was so happy about that. So this kind of, I thought, was opening up a whole new world to, you know, Hong Kong style action in the U.S. We kind of got that here and there, not as much as I would have liked, but that's one of many reasons why I like that. Getting into the movie, one of the things that I do like, any movie that opens up on a burning Hollywood sign such a great image and really just goes from there just to show the the shit show that los angeles is in what this isn't supposed to be 1993 right we're supposed to be like 1996 or something right (laughs) so it's not present day but it's near present day i don't know how we get to simon phoenix as a crime lord within three years i guess you know he probably watched new jack city a whole lot of times because he has taken over everything postman figured it out policemen figured it out but the goddamn bus drivers just wouldn't listen So now John Spartan has to go in and rescue all of these hostages, and it sets up this great kind of James Bond opening. That's my favorite kind of movie opening, is the give you an idea of of what they're capable of. I think the first Bond movie I saw in the theater was um, A View to a Kill, and that's always stuck with me as that's how you open a movie. It makes me think uh, Lionheart. I'm a big fan of someone screaming someone's name. (laughs) (laughs) And at the beginning of Lionheart, he screams his brother's name while he's dying in the uh, Burns unit. So (laughs) that was my connection. (laughs) And this is probably where you're at in your altered state the first time seeing this, Chris, is this is the Sylvester Stallone I want. This is the action film that I want. And then it takes this tremendous right turn and becomes something completely different. But that opening, this is the Sylvester Stallone movie to end all Sylvester Stallone movies. And then you've got Wesley Snipes there just hamming it up. And we are, what, four years north of the first Batman film. And he is channeling the Joker so much. Like, he is almost... Heath Ledger style Joker. Like he just wants, you know, he is, as Michael Caine would say, he wants to see the world burn. He doesn't care about anything. Yeah. He really zeroed in on that character and, and just played it for all it was worth. It's kind of shocking. I will say, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, surely at the time it was shocking, right? The way he looks. Oh yeah. And how he delivers all his lines. I mean, I don't even, I was very confused at the time and I, I remain, I always thought it was Dennis the menace, the, American Dennis the Menace, Dun- like the dungarees and the. I th- I thought that that's what they were going for, 
like a kind of a cheeky reference to Dennis the Menace. But then uh, my husband said Mario Brothers, and sure enough, there's a Mario <laughs> Brothers connection. <laughs> Never would have gone there. Just to put this in historical context for the younger listeners, such as one of our guests, this is pre-Dennis <laughs> Rodman. This is – we haven't seen necessarily – the black guy with the white hair, the blonde hair kind of thing. And then he's got the David Bowie multicolored eyes going on. So he's, you know, even without looking below the neck, Wesley Snipes is very striking in this movie. And then of course he's a 1993 Wesley Snipes, one of the most handsome men in the world, just looking great. And then, yeah, just chewing on this scenery. Like it's nobody's business. And you're there just wanting more. At least I was like, he's, he's not quite Ruby rod level, but he's getting close. I mean, can you think of another black villain, you know, or in a mostly white movie? I can't think of any, um, my answer was birth of a nation, (laughs) 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 but I mean, it's a interesting decision. I've never seen, I don't think, I can't think of any, any other black villain in like a majority white cast. I mean, my mind immediately went to something that Sam Jackson would play. Like, even thinking of the white hair in, like, Jumper, or even as the villain in Unbreakable. But I like that we don't necessarily know that he's the villain in that. But he does have that crazy haircut going on in that one. But yeah, I can't really think of, you know, when I think of black villains with white protagonists i mean my mind goes also to another james bond film live and let die but that's not majority white cast and i like that we get kind of setting up these characters that we're going to get later on you know having uh grandel bush as the one character and then having the young uh william smithers not Wayland smithers by the way (laughs) (laughs) every time he would say his name i was like is that the guy from the simpsons no Hello, Smithers. You're quite good at turning me on. Not only do we get the prisoner, we get the bad guy being frozen, but then we have the good guy being frozen as well after he's been set up by the bad guy. And then the way that we reveal the future, I think, is really nice. And then the way that we switch from having Sylvester Stallone as our protagonist to having Sandra Bullock as our protagonist. And I know at this point I had seen Sandra Bullock maybe once or twice before, but she was not the known quantity that she would become, even with a Speed or The Net or any of those other movies that really came in quick succession right afterwards. I love her in this film. I just think she's great. I mean, when was the time to kill? Because I feel like that's the first big, kind of big movie I saw her in. I'm pretty sure that was after. But, uh... She's so charming <laughs> in this film. I love her. I don't want to like put down Lori Petty. I mean, who isn't a fan of Tank Girl? But I just can't picture Lori Petty in this role. Like Lori Petty's always got that kind of like scrappy thing. Like I could see her as one of the like underground people or something, but I can't necessarily see her as like this apple pie kind of thing that Sandra Bullock has. And just like Sandra Bullock can play comedy and action so well. And she just has that like, Oh, I really wish there was more excitement in my world kind of thing. And the way that she'll kind of like flip her hair around and stuff. She just plays it so well. And you just, you, you like Lenita Huxley immediately when you see her. I I feel like the, the Huxley character at that point would have been, she would have had to have been totally different, like more, maybe just attitude wise, just 
embody what she felt the 90s were. Because, yeah, I don't see her much different from um, Kit in A League of Their Own and Tank Girl. She's She's got that type that she plays. Maybe she's got, like, the, the shaved eyebrows, like Robert Van Winkle or something, you know, really embodying 90s culture. Yep, yep. And it's great that she loves old pop culture, which is our pop culture from right then in 1993 or maybe a couple years earlier. Now, this isn't as... It's not as ridiculous as Ready Player One, where kids like things 50 years before they were born, and there's no necessarily the reason that they give is a really hokey reason. I like that she likes these things because they're kind of taboo, and it gives her this a little bit of a bad girl edge to her, you know, that she's got all of this contraband inside of her her office at the police station kind of gives her a little bit of an edge, you know, not a whole lot of it. She's not the girl in the PG movie. She's the girl in the PG 13 movie. The one you're not (laughs) quite sure about. She tries to be bad. Yeah. And she wants, I'm glad that she didn't screw up phrases at this point. Like the, the phrase mix up the is really nice later on when it comes, especially when she seems to get more excited and more into the action. She's not just dropping those right here to impress Benjamin Bratt. He was so innocent in this. He was just like wide-eyed like a puppy. He he really played that well. Got to dress, dress up as one of the uh, underground guys at the end, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, we like this character, and then we follow her. And it's like, I, I was thinking that Stallone is like Chekhov's gun. It's like, we know he's going to show up at some point. We just don't know when. And it's nice. It's a tension builder. You know, we know he's out there. We don't necessarily know when that's going to happen. And then when Simon Phoenix gets reintroduced to the world, it's like, wow, we now, after we've traveled with Huxley and we've seen the world through her eyes and we've gotten to know what this, you know, utopian, dystopian utopia is, we now know that Simon Phoenix is the fox in the hen, hen house. You know, that there's nothing that's going to be able to stop this guy. And even his reintroduction, the Wesley Snipes reintroduction is so great. I love what he's there repeating everything that Warden Smithers is saying in Spanish. It's so silly, but it works so well. Yeah, it's just such arrogance and, and superiority. That they don't they don't know how to react to that kind of stuff. It's it works really well just on a on a level where you don't even have to acknowledge it as a plot movement. It's just he's an asshole. You get it. It's like right there. I also like that Spartan is uh, at least for the majority of the film. We think he has killed a lot of people (laughs) through his reckless behavior. So he's not a good guy in the sense of uh, he's not innocent. He deserved to go to jail. Yeah. So I, I always appreciated that aspect. And then the uh, the kind of build up to them unfreezing him and the outrage and the the overplaying of all of that, it, <laughs> kind of making a mockery of action films. I just find I appreciate that so much. But the tone is really difficult to parse. For a long time, I, I wondered, you know, is this intentional? But I think it is. Well, I always complain in movies about 
the new guy, like the new guy in the ship that they then have to take around and introduce to all of the other characters and give us that thing and talk about, you know, hey, you know, Martinez, did you fix that thing on the forward deck yet or blah, blah, blah. And just the way that they introduce that guy around. Like, I think I just kind of saw that same thing, like in Pacific Rim 2, where it's like, okay, John Boyega is going to take that little girl and show her around and introduce her to everybody. And in this, we actually get that role being played by Sylvester Stallone. When he's unfrozen, he's unfrozen caveman lawyer, he comes back in, and Sandra Bullock gets to be the way that he enters into the world, which is a really nice thing that we take this character who's supposed to be such a badass and put him in this position of you know, being a lesser person that he doesn't understand what's going on. He can't even figure out the three seashells. He doesn't know how to use the three seashells. <laughs> I can see how that could be confusing. Yeah, they basically neuter his character with that exposition. The great thing about the exposition, too, is is you want to hear what happened and you want to know why the world is like that. And it's not just useless, here's this character, that character. You already know how they operate. So you want to know what went wrong that led to that. And and I thought the exposition in this, it didn't feel like an info dump. It felt like, okay, now what? What's next? Mm. <laughs> Keep talking. <laughs> they never revealed the information at the moment where they would give you the, like the visual of him knitting. It's like happening incidentally where he's um, <laughs> finding the, the yarn <laughs> on his arm. And they, it, it takes a while for them to tell you the joke. Like the punchline comes a couple scenes later when he yeah. has the sweater over. <laughs> As his his uh, sexual frustration gets worked out in knitting, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like that you say he's neutered. It's kind of surprising how they play it. The moment where he wants to drive and you kind of assume, oh yeah, he's the man, he's the tough mm-hmm. guy. He's going to drive. He can't figure it out, so he hands the wheel over to Sandra Bullock so she has to drive and it's not like a emasculating thing necessarily I don't know I found it kind of a it's like a sweet role for Stallone I, that's my yeah. favorite role yeah. like Rocky is essentially kind of you know soft even though he doesn't belong in this world and even though he's kind of taken aback by a lot of things at least he doesn't go off on stuff it's not like when they're singing commercial jingles in the car and enjoying themselves he doesn't turn around and tell them that they're stupid for like that and yeah he's kind of sweet about it he just you know rolls his eyes or whatever "Eh, it's living that's a really interesting point because it shows that i would think his character is spartan is smart enough to realize that things change it's been 60 whatever years things have changed he's not going to change that back by complaining about it or going on a tirade rant yelling at them for singing commercials there's a there's a little more depth to his character than than uh an initial first view would give you i mean he he makes a sweater for her yeah (laughs) he could have hidden that and been embarrassed but he shows up and hands her a gift it's sweet that's a good point yeah and i like what you were saying as well chris as far as that you know non- info dump info dump where we just get real thumbnail sketch of there was a quake we were in chaos mr cocteau raymond cocteau came along and he 
put things the way that they are now. So there are questions to me of like, well, what's happening in other cities? Is this all is this Cocteau's St. Angeles? Is there other things going on in other places? Is everything like this? But, you know, I don't necessarily worry or start writing fan fiction to fill in those gaps. It's just like, okay, there are things going on, and I don't have to know how Raymond Cocteau came to power. I don't have to know how Assistant Bob got his job, those kind of things. I just... You know, in in to hear, you know, some of the things behind, like you know, uh, the the director's commentary where he's saying, like, oh well, now the, you know, the way that the ozone layer was growing at the time when we shot this, we decided that there would be, you know, more sun than r- there is right now, so people are are wearing these kind of kimonos to cover up more of their bodies and stuff. I was like, oh, that's interesting, and that he's will world building without having to telegraph that and just treat us like we're idiots it's like this thing is here and you can accept it and move on or you can fret about it yeah there's there's world building and then there's bragging let me tell you exactly how the machine on the wall that hears swear words works and the algorithm of swear words and where those credits come from that they keep finding you yeah that swear machine is one of the funniest fucking things ever. <laughs> and especially when he is those, those few moments that I was talking about where he does go off and does start to, you know, try to make them realize what a madman Simon Phoenix is. And you've got the machine just going off in the background or you hear it like when they're in the museum and they have that, you know, that <laughs> reunion of Phoenix and Spartan this is a stupid thing, but I'll tell you one thing I really like in this movie is the whole way that we use our characters, first names and last names every single time they say them. It's very proper. It's a very proper society. What's what I found interesting is there's a lot of hints, a lot of um, very subtle foreshadowing with a lot of the background stuff, like the, um, the sotto voce machines will name everyone by first and last name, except Simon Phoenix. He's not named at all. He's a wild card. He's once you realize he's not being named, you're like, oh, that's that's he's definitely going to be <laughs> somebody did that on purpose. He's going to be a problem. Somebody somebody set it up. He doesn't have his low jack. It's also interesting, too, because he can say whatever he wants and no one within earshot. If he swears, no one would know that he's there. Because it's also kind of an announcement system, isn't it? Michael White is over there swearing, and it's it's kind of a of a public shaming system at the same time. Yeah, and that's one thing that it takes me a while before I even start to think about that. That there's like a real uh, Clockwork Orange thing going on in this this whole idea of the social conditioning and taking those those square pegs and making them fit into the round holes. The whole idea of reconditioning John Spartan to be a knitter now, rather than he's a knitter, not a hitter. And Simon Phoenix getting programmed the other way, you know, and that you could, you could take an Alex DeLarge and make him worse if you wanted to. And that's what they've done to Simon Phoenix is that they've, they've, They've done it. It kind of reminds me of what they would do a few years uh, after this, and it's almost like he's walking into the Matrix, and now it's like I know Kung Fu. You know, he knows everything. He doesn't know how he knows this stuff, but he knows it. 
Yeah, and and with those two characters, they show you the absolute best and worst the the judicial system is capable of. I was reminded okay. of that. <laughs> Robocop, especially the inability to kill the um, creator, I guess. It's sort of, I guess, Robocop would be Spartan and Phoenix combined. The, <laughs> he's the baddie, goody, softy. But, uh, yeah, it, I don't know. It combines a whole bunch of stuff. Did, I know... Uh, one of you was saying that you did, it wasn't what you expected it to be. Yeah, first viewing. Yeah. Did you know it was going to be a comedy? Uh, no. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> no one I know, like anytime I ask anybody about it, they just assume it's a, another hard body, stupid action mm-hmm. movie, just run of the mill. And when I tell them it's a sci-fi comedy, they are mystified. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we can't not talk about Edgar Friendly the underground movement because we've got and it's weird that this underground movement of these scraps are bothering Cocteau so much that he has to unfreeze Simon Phoenix in order to be the instrument to destroy Edgar Friendly because it just doesn't seem like they're that much of a threat but I guess anything that goes outside of this very carefully laid out social order that Cocteau has needs to be squashed and i guess he's going to use the biggest fucking hammer that he possibly can to squash this little threat to the system or you know he, it might not be that little because it seems like a very thriving underground community you know they've got rat burgers they've got all this kind of stuff they've got their their awesome hot rod down in this layer and everything but yeah, it feels like a little much sometimes, but I guess that's what Cocteau would do. He's going to make the perfect killing machine in order to take out that bug, Edgar Friendly. Do you think maybe it's a matter of perspective with all the time having gone by, with society getting more peaceful and polite, that somebody like Friendly down there that would just speak the truth of what he sees as the truth and uh, that you would go after him with a missile when a fly swatter would work that he's just totally lost all touch with reason uh, being reasonable i can see that i mean i i think that simon phoenix is somebody that somebody like donald trump would resurrect and say <laughs> you know we're gonna go after this guy with everything that we possibly can yeah it does seem like a liability mm. Like, it's kind of an extreme decision to make. But, uh, I mean, Dennis Leary's character just, he reveals the artifice of the promise that he's given that society. And so, as long as he's spraying graffiti, you know, exposing that there are people that are left out of that utopia. I mean, Mm. I guess sending a psychopath who, I don't know. (laughs) It doesn't really make much sense. (laughs) I love how upset chief george earl is the bob gunton character is about the graffiti like that is such a major thing and i love how that's what's got him so upset uh with the morning that simon phoenix gets out is that there's graffiti going on i just realized that sandra bullock worked with the two luminary dennises of the 1990s dennis leary and dennis miller both can you believe that I don't necessarily know what Dennis Leary's up to, but I know Dennis Miller is fucking crazy now. Yeah, I think him and um, uh, Victoria Jackson shared a drink at some point. <laughs> when they were on uh, Weekend Edition together? 
<laughs> I think Rob, uh, Rob, what's his name? Might have been uh, Rob Schneider. Might have been drinking out of that cup too. He's great in this, though. He's in Judge Dredd as well. I don't know. Were they friends, Stallone and Rob Schneider? I think they must have been pals. They when they met on the set. It was love at first sight. The Dennis Leary stuff is a little much for me. Like when he does his MTV bumper shtick that he was doing, that's a little much. And I know that they probably just said, Dennis, do your thing. But that stuff doesn't age well to me very much at all. At least he's not like doing the Bill Hicks ripoff and smoking the cigarette, you know? I, I can't stand it. I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I cringe during all of his scenes. I remember liking it at the time when he was when he was at his height, but now I'm like, all right, just let's get back to the plot. Are you ready to do a fan edit yet? And the uh, <laughs> the more friendly version, you could call it. <laughs> it's like the people that go through and cut out all of Ryan Reynolds from Blade Three. Oh, jeez. <laughs> He was my favorite part of that movie, but yeah, that's just me. He was he was really into that. Yeah, and he had those crazy hip bone things going on in that movie. I've never seen Ryan Reynolds look as good as he did in that. That's true. Yeah, it's interesting to think you know. There's a lot of obviously, Lenina Huxley is we're coming right out of Brave New World, and then even thinking of john savage is not the actor but the character john savage is the kind of man out of time outsider but i i'm wondering if john spartan is that character in this or if edgar friendly is that character in this because they kind of both have some similar aspects that they are both outsiders but then one is really chafing under this brave new world and other and John Spartan seems to be kind of going along with it, even though he knows things could be better. At least nobody hangs themselves in this movie. (laughs) 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 I forgot what a downer ending brave new world had until just a few months ago. Oof. Spoilers, by the way, I, I talked about the malapropisms of Sandra Bullock earlier and she reminds me, you know, and those are, very cute to me and i almost wish that there were more of those throughout the movie but she always reminds me of the white cop from sanford and son do you guys remember that guy where he would be like right off and his partner or i guess like uh david ogden steers in uh, better off dead come on lane mellow off i mean it's a brand new year i understand there's new year's eve dance at your school you kids Love this disco thing. You are really bringing me over, man. Laura, you mentioned uh, Judge Dredd and the Rob Schneider connection. And as I'm watching this movie and they start to thaw all the other criminals, especially towards the end, I'm totally thinking of the new judges that uh, they're making in, that his brother is making in Judge Dredd. And I think between that and Rob Schneider, um, my mom's third husband, he used to always get Judge Dredd and Demolition Man mixed up. And I was very <laughs> personally affronted by that. And he, we would start to talk about something and be like, oh, yeah, Judge Dredd. And I'd be like, no, 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 Demolition Man. And then 
uh, you know, I'd say something else and be like, yeah, 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 just like in Demolition Man. I'd be like, no, no, that's Judge Dredd. So much to the point where I actually bought him both of those movies as a Christmas gift once, like one of the most smart-ass Christmas gifts that he didn't necessarily <laughs> know was a smart-ass Christmas gift. So then he got that. And then he, sad end to the story, he passed away. Good end to the story, I inherited his DVDs. So now I have <laughs> Judge Dredd and Demolition Man. <laughs> Wow. And I also got a real Johnny Mnemonic vibe from this movie, especially like the scraps being very similar to me to that kind of underground that Ice-T leads in Johnny Mnemonic. I can see a world where on the West Coast you have San Angeles and on the East Coast you have Mega City One and you have a Stallone on each coast and a Rob Schneider on each coast. And Keanu Reeves is running around with a bunch of data in his head. Oh, hell yes. That's the world I want to live in. But I, I, I always kind of considered uh, Judge Dredd and, and Demolition Man like like spiritual sequels to each other. Like, they're not connected at all. But if you think about it for a second, you could get a flimsy connection and do a double feature. Do you think John Spartan like goes extreme after this? Well, it could either lead to friendlies people coming up from the underground could either lead to the downfall of humanity again, and then Spartan would have to start the judges, or the judges have already happened, and this is the utopia that came from it. And there's that, what, the wasted land where those cannibals live? Yeah, yeah, that's the flyover states. Do you think that there's <laughs> tank girls out there? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right, cool. I love it. Actually, no, that's Australia, because the, uh, the Rippers are mutated kangaroos. Oh, that's right. Also, Ice-T connection. Yeah, so Mad Max and Tank Girl can all be in the same continent. They're looking for the green <laughs> place. So, yeah, there's my universal uh, apocalyptic dystopian theory that it all happens all at the same time. Back when Ice-T could be such a big part of a movie, and back before Dennis Leary was the ref, back when I could watch movies with Kevin Spacey in them, Back when I knew what Judy Davis was up to, God, that was those were better times. But yeah, everything about this movie just works for me. Maybe with the exception of Dennis Leary, everything about this movie works for me. I love the cops. I love their relationships with one another. I mentioned the Bob Gunton character earlier. I, I mean, I love him in everything that he does. The, the way that those cops interact with each other... You know, Benjamin Brad as Alfredo Garcia. I didn't mention that he's Alfredo Garcia earlier. Is fantastic. And then, I mean, Glenn Shadix in full Otho mode here as associate. Oh, yeah. So good. And just his, like, the way he holds his hands and he's got the gloves on and everything. Just his body language in this movie is so good. Everybody seems to be really firing on all cylinders. Yeah, it's 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 not a common thing for a, a movie that's this off-center for everybody to be on board with it and get what they're doing. Yeah, and it's a big cast. I mean, it's yeah. a cast of cameos and stars. And the, for me, the some of my favorite scenes are the, I guess you'd call it the control room. But when they're watching, the cops are watching the attempted arrest of <laughs> Phoenix, that whole scene sequence to me is just fantastic the be like figuring out what you're supposed to tell him and the uh (laughs) they figured out where he is so they think everything's done 
And when yeah. they uh, witnessed the murders, Rob Schneider vomiting everywhere. <laughs> 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 I mean, it is just fun. It's just, I love it. That's all, all of those sequences are my favorites. And Stallone's not even in any of them. Yeah, and you are such a Stallone fan. That's why I knew to ask you to be on this one. Is just your Facebook feed. <laughs> yeah, I love him. <laughs> I, I alienate Stallone fans. <laughs> <laughs> My husband used to like Stallone, but not so much now. Wow, you turned him off he, of Stallone? Yeah. he. he I, it's weird because I grew up in the era of, you know, Demolition Man and <laughs> Stop Him and One Will Shoot stuff like that and i really knew him as 90s stallone and it was really only as i got a little older that i kind of got, got to know him as i guess the stallone everyone else knows but it was my husband that kind of introduced me to his way earlier stuff and now he um yeah it's tough it's tough living with me what i like about demolition man is that it allows stallone to be funny and that he is, to me, he is such a gifted comedic actor. Now, we talked a lot about him when we talked about uh, Beverly Hills Cop. And it's really tough to imagine, you know, they had to rewrite the role for Eddie Murphy because uh, Sylvester Stallone can be a lot of things, but kind of smart-ass, streetwise cop, not necessarily. Like, I can't really see him being Eddie Murphy. You know, Eddie Murphy is Eddie Murphy, and Sylvester Stallone mm-hmm. is Sylvester Stallone, and never the twain shall meet. But I can see him playing comedy. We see him playing comedy in this. We saw him playing comedy in Oscar. We saw it in Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. We saw it a little bit in Rhinestone. We definitely mm. saw it in Copland. I mean, that is a laugh riot. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, to be 100% serious... Copland, we get to see the other side of Stallone. We get to see that really dramatic side of Stallone. To me, that's still one of my favorite Stallone performances. He can go all over the map. And I like that we're playing with his image in this movie. And we allow him to be that ass kicker we talked about at the beginning of the movie. We allow him to be the ass kicker at the end of this movie. And in between, we actually get to see him as a comedic actor, as a straight man, a lot of times he's not, you know, a bumbling idiot in this or anything, but we just get to appreciate the future through him after we've gotten a different appreciation through Sandra Bullock. Yeah. He, he, they, he actually signed onto a film that made him a punchline for three, three quarters of it. Yeah. And he references his own films in the, uh, throughout. And, And there were some really obvious ones, but then there's, like really neat, subtle ones when he's wounded, and this is after we discover he can he's he's a master knitter. Um, he's wounded, and Huxley notices it, and he says, "Oh, I'll sew it up later," meaning like from First Blood, where he yeah. sews up his own wound. <laughs> but it's like because he's now a seamstress. <laughs> it's just so I love that stuff. It's and it's neat. He doesn't overplay it. Like it feels more natural. And I think people forget how funny he is in Rocky in a more naturalistic way. He's always had a sense of humor about his performances. I think uh, got like, squashed out of him and stuff like The Specialist. Yeah, that's a good point. That That's a very joyless film. Yeah, Tom. The sex scene <laughs> is one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen. <laughs> you mentioned you got to see this as the Pizza Hut movie. I did. I didn't even know that there was a Pizza Hut cut of this until 
I'll be totally honest. Like I said, I own this on DVD. I own a Dead Man's version of this on DVD. Regifted to myself, I guess you could say. And that version, you know, I've seen a ton of times. I saw it in the theater. I saw it on VHS. And now I see it on DVD. And then when I went to rewatch this again recently, I was lazy. And I downloaded it from the internet. Illegally. Hello? FCC downloaded it illegally. And as I'm watching this, yeah, everything's normal. And then all of a sudden, let's have dinner tonight at Pizza Hut. And I'm just like, did I just cross into the mirror universe? What is going on? I expected Olivia from Fringe to come knocking on my door or something. I'm just like, what is happening here? I had no idea that they had changed the product placement from Taco Bell to Pizza Hut in the UK. And when I'm watching this movie over in Shanghai, which was weird that it was on TV at least three times while I was in Shanghai, <laughs> they're showing the Pizza Hut version. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is so bizarre. And it wasn't just an overdub. It was full-fledged, let's shoot two versions of these scenes. Like, as soon as I started saying the words Pizza Hut, I'm yelling out to my my wife, Honey, honey, they're saying Pizza Hut, not Taco Bell. <laughs> What's with this cocktail guy, anyway? He says I saved his life, which I'm not even sure I did, and my reward is dinner and dance in a Pizza Hut? I mean, hey, I like a big, fat piece of pizza, but come on. Your tone is quasi-facetious, but you do not realize that Pizza Hut was the only restaurant to survive the franchise wars. So? So... Now all restaurants are Pizza Hut. No way. The visual of the high, high, like fancy dining Taco Bell food was such a great visual joke. But did they make little miniature pizzas? I'm going to have to go back and watch it now because no, I, I don't have still anything. have that version. Yeah, because he does keep talking about, uh, you know, how he could go for a burrito and stuff. But I think they keep the uh, the rat burger. Oh, I, I want to talk about the car. Did you know it sold at the auction in 2011? There was only one of those. No. Yeah, because I was, <laughs> uh, my husband rebuilds remote control cars. So he got me one. So I wanted to buy, um, like, build the car from Demolition Man. So I bought, like, a shell. I was trying to figure out what kind of car it was. And I figured out it's a 1970 Oldsmobile. It's like a one-of-a-kind and it sold for $93,500 in 2011 at auction. I thought you were talking about the future cars at first. No, the car that Stallone finds and drives out of the dealership. That's a nice moment. And I was making sure that they burst the glass right before they drove through it. Because I was like, you can't damage that car. Come on. I would have bought that car if I had the money, though. Just because Sly Stallone's butt sweat was in it? Oh, speaking of his butt, the seashell joke, which we kind of skipped over... The seashell, does anyone find it kind of, I guess whenever I see the movie, I cannot get over the fact that they force you to think about his butthole and a signal whenever he's going to take a shit. <laughs> and hmm. it ends on that note. I, it's like kind of, <laughs> it's unusual. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess when you got to go, especially after you've been frozen for however many years. Yeah. Make a big display of it. Kind of reminds me of the evacuation complete joke from the first awesome powers, which I didn't even realize until I was watching this, this recently, I was like, 
you know, this whole idea of these two frozen adversaries going at it, because there was talk of like, oh yeah, Demolition Man was a ripoff of this Hungarian story called, uh, what was it, Fight of the Future or something, which, believe it or not, yes, I tried to get the Hungarian story, but I don't read Hungarian. There is not, as far as I can tell, an English translation of this story. I would like to read it just to see what the similarities are. But I was like, oh, well, if that's going to get, if Demolition Man's going to get accused of plagiarism, then I think Austin Powers should get accused as well, because it's the same idea of these two adversaries (laughs) getting frozen. And then when Dr. Evil comes back to Earth, they unfreeze austin powers and set him after it and then we have the same fish out of water thing but you know it's interesting that they're from our past as opposed to going into our future same fish out of water just different water all right we're going to take a break and play a series of interviews the first is with screenwriter peter lenkov the second is with screenwriter fred decker the third there's a pattern here is with screenwriter Daniel Waters, and finally, we'll hear from production designer David L. Schneider. Don't worry, I'll come back and do the intros to each one of those so nobody gets lost. And we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the projection booth brings you a new show possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take Uh us to church. Uh, What can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. (laughs) Uh, Is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, (laughs) horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one <laughs> That is one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ugh. 
That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. wonder when spider-man goes to the bathroom if the toilet paper sticks to his fingers you ever wonder why superman wears his underwear outside of his pants my name is imran my name is anthony he's the jock and he's the nerd and we're your hosts for the jock and nerd podcast where we sometimes try to attempt to answer these questions this is a full spoiler podcast and we swear a lot check it out for awesome geek news interviews and comic book reviews visit jockandnerd.com we are your superhero tv movies and comic book culture curators boom jockandnerd.com jockandnerd i'm chris cooling from forgotten tv and you're listening to the projection booth the ultimate movie podcast you like classic movies how about classic tv Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. All right, welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we have an interview with the producer and original screenwriter of Demolition Man, Peter Lenkov. This is going all the way back to the beginning of your career. And I'm curious, first off, how you decided that you would have a career in show business. As a kid, I always wrote poems and short stories and and drew. um, And I wanted to do something in the arts. And um, I liked writing the most. And I used to write plays for my summer camp and short stories for anybody that would read them. And... um, I just loved TV. Uh, I just thought um, that's something I wanted to do. I never thought it was possible, though I didn't think that would stand in my way. I I think I was so naive thinking, oh, I'll just buy a ticket to L.A. and go there and be a writer. And I think that uh, maybe being so naive actually helped me because I probably, if I knew how hard it was, I'd probably be too terrified to get on the plane. I just really, from a kid, wanted to sort of right. I just always had that desire. Well, when did you jump on that plane and go to LA? 30 years ago. Demolition Man's what, the 25th anniversary, right? So it's about 30 years ago. I know that you wrote the the version of Demolition Man that I read was dated 1989. I wrote 12 drafts of that script. Back in the day, the studio would pay you for each draft. I don't even know if, you know, nowadays, like, you, there's drafts in between, interim drafts. Sometimes you don't get paid for some of them. I got paid for so many different drafts. Uh, by the time I was done writing, it was very, it was like, it was so different from the first few drafts because it was going to be Schwarzenegger, I think. Then it was Seagal. And I wrote a couple drafts with Steven Seagal. Then, uh, Stallone came in and I spent a lot of time rewriting it for him. The idea of the, you know, sex machine using the pods to have sex, uh, the head, you know, the head pods, uh, that was his idea. So that was never in the original script. It just went through so many variations, you know, so many different variations with different actors over the years that, um, it sort of changed drastically. If you started writing that, pre-1990, because your first credit that I know of was Parker Kane back in 1990. Well, I got Parker Kane because I wrote Demolition Man. I think I wrote Demolition Man took three years to get made, maybe a little bit over three years to get made. Um, so it originally sold to a company called Corolco um, and uh, then ended up at Warner Brothers. 
And when does Joel Silver enter the picture with that? I wrote the script when I was working um, uh, a PA, like a production assistant for a production company in in uh, L.A. It, it, it wasn't even at the studio. It was actually on Wilshire, La Cienega in Wilshire. The only reason why I took the job at that place was on the bus route. And I, and I, I wanted, cause I didn't have a car when I first moved there. So I wanted something that was very accessible. So I got a job at this production company and, uh, I wrote Demolition Man in the mornings and at night, you know, between, before I, I started work and after work. And so when I sold the script, I met an agent, sold the script to Corolco. My bosses at the time said, oh, we have to be producers on that because you wrote that while you were employed for us, even though I was an assistant. Uh, and even though I wrote it on my own hours. So Corolco got scared because they thought that, you know, these people would sue them. So Joel Silver ended up hearing about it. He told Warner Brothers about the situation and they came in and their lawyers took care of everything and they bought the script for me. You're writing this as a PA, and one of your first scripts, or what it was it not one of your first scripts, ends up getting picked up and produced within four years. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a lot. Of, I probably wrote seven scripts before that. Uh, that probably was the most commercial. I optioned a couple of them, but you know, for not a lot of money and not enough to like sort of really quit my day job. But that, uh, yeah, I was really, I was a kid. I mean, I, I was, I just, I dropped out of college, uh, uh, went to LA two years later, uh, uh, I sold that movie. So what was the original inspiration for Demolition Man? Desperation. When I was working as a PA in that company, I lent a friend a cassette. Um, I forget what album it was. I, I lent it to him. He lost it. So he gave me one in return, which was Sting's, I think it was called Dream of Blue Turtle or something. And on it was a song called Demolition Man. And I, so I had that cassette. And uh, at the time I had bought a car, a salvage car, a salvage vehicle, which I don't know if you know anything about if you buy a car with a salvage title, that means it was in an accident, like a pretty bad accident and it's really considered salvaged. But that was the only car I could afford. Didn't have a radio. So I had a boom box that I chained to the back seat and I had that cassette in the boom box. The cassette or the boom box was broken. So whatever song was playing will repeat over and over again because it had that thing where on repeat. So I would drive home every night hearing Demolition Man. And there was something that stood in my head, which was a line from the song called Don't Mess Around with the Demolition Man. And I kept wondering, who the fuck is the Demolition Man? If this guy is so, you know, if you don't want to mess around with him, he must be one, you know, tough motherfucker. Don't mess around with the Demolition Man. I kept playing over myself. I kept wondering, like, who is this guy? Also, at the time, I, I was sort of trying to find, like, what stuff I should write and somebody said to me, write stuff, but you know, I dropped out of college. I knew nothing, but I knew the cop genre because I loved it growing up watching cop shows. And also I was obsessed with whether or not Walt Disney was frozen. And back then there was a lot of National Enquirer stories about Walt Disney being frozen and you couldn't, it was, it was like everywhere. And so I just decided to do a mashup of like the cop genre something to do with chirogenics and call it demolition man, which was explain the origins of the guy that sting was talking about, even though 
I don't even know if he was talking. I don't, he still don't know really what the song was about, but, uh, but, uh, and then I, but I, and I didn't even want to write it. I wanted to pitch it. So I called, there was a woman named Riley Ellis who worked for Joel Silver at the time. Uh, there was an article about her and I forget what, some magazine. So I got her name and I cold called her and she was nice enough to meet with me. And I didn't pitch her in that meeting, but I met with her and then she said, come back when you have a really strong idea. So right before Christmas, I called her up and I pitched her on the phone, Demolition Man. I said a cop, he's in cryogenic prison. He, the guy he was after gets released and you know they release him to go after him. And halfway through the pitch, she said, I really don't understand it. I can't follow it. It really doesn't make sense. And, uh, but she said, thanks, keep coming back to us. And, and I got off the phone, but I was so certain that I had something and it was two weeks before Christmas when the town shuts down. So it wasn't even a chance for me to pitch it anywhere else. So I decided I was just going to write it. And I wrote the script and I wanted to have the script sent out, but because I was a, a PA, like as an assistant, I didn't want, I didn't want to use my name on the script because people knew me as a you know, is writing letters for, you know, for submission letters for my boss. So I sent the script out. It was it said demolition by 2EXL308, which was my license plate. And I thought that also would, you know, sort of be a little mysterious, like who wrote this script? And it would like, it was almost a gimmick. Uh, and uh, it worked because a lot of people started calling up the agent, saying, who is this guy? I want to meet this guy. And, but we ended up and we sold the script to Corolco, uh, for a lot, a lot, a lot of money at the time, and then, um, which was a big deal at the time, and then was for everything hit the brakes when my bosses said, "Hey, we we should participate in that," and so it stalled at Crawco, and then Warner Brothers picked it up. You talked about writing so many drafts of that and changing it from, you know, for Stallone versus Seagal. When was the point where you left it as a writer? I think about six months maybe seven months before it got made. They actually brought in Dan Waters to do a comedy pass on it. I don't know how long he stayed on it. I don't think it was that long because I I think he came in and did a draft and then he went off to do Hudson Hawk or something. How much did it change? Was it still dystopian when he came in and made it utopian or had it changed to more of a utopian futuristic society at that point? Pretty much the same, except that we had a pizza hut. They changed it to Taco Bell because they made a deal with Taco Bell at the time. A lot of, a lot of humor, you know, the, the, uh, the jingles that was, uh, I don't know if that was Marco's idea or, um, or Dan's idea, but, um, you know, I don't really fall. I didn't follow like the day to day of it. But when it started shooting, I used to go to set. But that was it. Well, how was that seeing something that you wrote in those early days being made into a feature film? It was surreal because I had my family come to set and my Stallone was showing my sister his trailer. And it was just like it was surreal. Yeah, because, you know, I grew up watching Rocky. So all of a sudden I'm working with the guy and, you know, and I'm a kid, basically, and. You know, I'm walking around the Warner Brothers law with, you know, and they had like four sound stages for the Cryer prison and everything for the police station. And it just was crazy. And Lori Petty, actually, it's funny. Lori Petty had the Sandra Bullock role first. I don't know if you know that story. So they shot with her one day and then uh, just didn't work out. Sometimes it doesn't work out. And they had Sandra Bullock on a contract because she had done a movie called Wrestling Ernest Hemingway. 
and then she came over and and um, picked up the role. Yeah, I saw that. I I I still think that was kind of false advertising because there wasn't a lot of wrestling in that movie. What's also interesting is, you know, the wife Stallone's character always had a wife and uh, and a daughter, and that was shot. And then when they did the um, in his, and in the, in the finished version is what happened was his wife died and his daughter was alive, but his daughter was the same age as him. But when we did the test screenings, there was some like sort of blowback from audience thinking that he's sleeping with a woman who's the same age as his daughter. I don't know if that would matter today, but 25 years ago, it was a it was a comment, you know, on the in the test screenings that uh, had them cut out the daughter. I haven't looked at the movie in a while, but. She is standing next to Dennis Leary in one of the uh, scrap scenes, but she's never acknowledged. The first draft I wrote, I know for sure, the first draft I wrote was 88. So I know that for sure. The draft that I sold was 88. I originally wanted Mickey Rourke to star in it. I loved, I loved Mickey Rourke, and I wanted him to star in it. So I never saw anybody other than him in it. And then as the sort of, you know, Joel sort of went through the Rolodex of actors, it changed. It got a little lighter in tone, and it wasn't as dark. I, I, my original draft was a lot darker. In fact, my original draft, that time catches up with you. So that was a big part of the story originally, where at the end of the original draft, he ends up going home to his, his wife, you know, who was much older. And that was a ticking clock in the story that both him and Phoenix were getting older as story progressed. And I don't think his name was, I'm trying to remember in the original draft, they, the name changed along the way for some reason. The one I saw was like William Wade. William Wade, yeah. Yeah, and Duclair or something. Yeah, Simon Doucette or Duclair, yeah. Doucette, yeah, Simon Doucette, yeah. And then it was Simon Phoenix. I forget, you know, these things, they they change. Uh, I think what, I, you know what, actually I'm trying to remember now. I think because the whole Phoenix rises from the ashes thing, I think that was, just it was a metaphor. I, I I have to look back. I still have a file with all my notes and all the executive notes on it. And you obviously have no problem with comedy since you've you did uh, Son-in-Law and Chairman of the Board and a few other you know, uh, Jury Duty, you know, straight out comedies. But I'm curious, were you okay with Demolition Man having that? No, I would. That's the thing. I was. That's the one thing that I uh, uh, did not. I wasn't a big fan of, and I really resisted it until they just said, we're bringing Dan Waters on. I didn't want to have it be a comedy. Like, I didn't want it to have so much comedy. I really, I felt like I wanted to do something that was more pseudo-science fiction cop movie. Uh, and I didn't, you know, I purposely resisted putting comedy in it. There was some comedy in it, but I didn't want it to be so sort of over-the-top comedy. Uh, which I find the movie has some of, but I didn't want it to be that. I always wanted it to be a more sort of serious film. I know that Demolition Man probably helped open a lot of doors for you, but you went on to do so much since then. I'm curious, how did you manage to go into the producing business as well as the writing business? I think because maybe that experience taught me that I got to have more control over the things that I do. I wasn't even considering committing myself full-time to TV, but... A friend of mine, an executive at Warner Brothers, had asked me to come in and do an episode of the show. He said he said they needed some scripts, and Warner Brothers, because you know, they made Demolition Man, I was very fond of those people there, and 
So I ended up doing one script, and I really connected with the showrunner, a guy named Joel Cernow, who became ultimately one of my closest friends. Um, uh, he did 24 after that, which I did with I did a, a year on that. Um, but um, but I did that because of because of Joel convincing me that uh, I should stay on after that script that I had, I had given them, and it was actually the right move because I really enjoyed the whole sort of show running and the speed of the, of the TV world. There's stuff that's on, not on my resume, but you know, I did the first draft of speed racer. I did the first draft of landed a lot. I, you know, sometimes you win arbitration, sometimes you don't. So there's been a lot of movies that I worked on over the years that are not on my resume, but you know, the movie business is tough that way. Uh, the TV business was a lot more rewarding because, you know, the speed of it and, and the amount of stuff you could actually get made. So that's why I, I really stuck with it. How did you get into writing comic books? I had met with uh, Mike Richardson, who, uh, who just said, what do you want to do? Let's do a movie together. And I said, I really want to do a comic book. And he sort of explained to me the economics of writing comic books, which you cannot make money from. In any world... It's not bad. It's $200 a page. But in the film business, it's not a lot of money. Uh, so he tried to convince me to do something else. And I just said, I've always dreamt about writing a comic book. And, and ultimately, he let, me, he let me do it. So, How long after you started to write R.I.P.D. was it optioned to be a movie? When I wrote the script for the comic book and we had the, some rough artwork, Mike sold it to, uh, to Larry Gordon in Universal. So it wasn't even a published yet. I guess in the publishing world, they call it like the galleys, you know, when you're in the galleys of uh, – so we were in early days like that. So Obviously, I imagine that you enjoyed it because you've written other stuff as well. In fact, I've been desperate to try to get back and write another comic book, uh, but it's just a matter of finding the time. But I, I loved it. The one great thing about writing comics that I realized is that you don't have to worry about budget. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. You just – if you want a train to crash, you can write a train crashing and it'll happen. You don't have to have somebody down the road tell you that, you know, that's too expensive. Uh, and I found that very liberating, which is why I, I probably to this day has been, it's been the most rewarding and less, least stressful sort of thing I've done. So these days you've got quite a few shows that you're working on right now with Hawaii Five O and MacGyver. And then you've got Magnum PI coming up and, is it too early to talk about Magnum PI? Has that been picked up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but we could reconnect in uh, a little bit down the road. We could talk about okay, it. Okay, that'd be great. I do have one question for you, though. Being someone from Detroit, I have to ask: Does he wear the Tigers cap? Yes, yes, okay, he does. Okay, good, yeah. perfect. Yeah, I look. I was a massive fan of the show, so nobody is going to watch that show and not think that we really honored the original. So. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much, Mr. Lenkoff, for, for talking to me today. For sure. Thank you. Thanks for your time, man. I appreciate it.
All right, up next, we have a very quick interview with our good friend, Fred Decker. I really wanted to ask you a little bit about how you got involved and what you brought to Demolition Man, because I was looking at a draft of the script, and your name is listed as one of the many writers on the project. Well, I was approached by Joel Silver, uh, who I've worked with many times, uh, who I think very highly of, and uh, he, he approached me about taking a crack at rewriting the script that had been written by one of my dearest friends, Robert Renault. And, uh, I think Peter Lefcourt does that. First of all, he, he, he called me and he asked me to, to, to take a crack at a rewrite. There was, there were only a couple of drafts by Bob and, uh, and Peter. And my first instinct was to not do it just out of deference to my friend, Robert. I called him. I said, listen, I can't do this. I, I don't want to rewrite you. And he said, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's fine. I'm not on the project anymore and, you know, go with God. So, but I still had misgivings about it. And then Joel called me and he's a very persuasive fellow. And he called me, he said, we're going, we're going to Italy. We're going to go, go to Rome. We'll put you up in a, 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 a in Rome. And, you know, my friend's me. You know, she's a playmate. You know, uh, Lisa, she's, she's beautiful. Let's go. And I was, okay, <laughs> I guess I can't say no to that. So we went, uh, myself and Joel and Lorenzo de Bonaventura, who was the executive on the movie, we went to Rome to hang around, uh, hang out with Sly Stallone, who was making Cliffhanger with Rennie Harlan. And so we went to sort of powwow about how he saw the movie and, you know, what, you know, what his expectations were. And, and, um, and I found him to be very smart and really kind of delightful to hang around with. You know, it was kind of a paid vacation in Rome for two or three days. And uh, we had great food and, uh, and we talked about the script. And, and, I, and I, we came back to L.A. and I went off and uh, took a crack at it. I think I did, I think I may have done two drafts, maybe, maybe only one. At the end of the day, I brought two things to the movie. I brought the opening of the movie and I brought um, a line of dialogue about midway through. The opening of the movie was originally, in the original script, credits playing over Stallone's character in cryogenic sleep, having uh, having already been arrested for some crime and, and, and put under uh, for however long. So Spartan was frozen, and much like the, t- the credit sequence in the movie as it exists, it was showing him in this cryogenic chamber and establishing that he'd been frozen for many years so that when he came out, we would realize, okay, he's from another era. And the first thing I said to Joel was, why don't we show how, how we got here and what happened? And Joel was convinced that the audience would make the mental leap that this is essentially a, 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 a kind of conglomeration of all of Sly's action heroes so he just sort of thought, well, we've all seen the movies that, that flies in. And that's kind of the, the preamble. And I said, well, that's, I don't know if that's a persuasive argument. I understand what you're saying. But what you've essentially done is you've, you've created Oz, but you've left out Kansas. And, and he, uh, he seemed to understand what I was saying. So I wrote um, the sort of pre-credits teaser which features a, uh, a you know crime-ridden you know one step from dystopian future Los Angeles, so that when Spartan is frozen and comes out years later, you know we see the difference. We see the distinction of this sort of shiny, happy future from what it was before, which was filthy and 
and, 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 and gunfire and fire and all that kind of stuff. So I wrote that. Uh, the final version, I, I don't know whoever replaced me and took over, rewrote it, but the idea of that was mine. Um, I think they also wanted to introduce Wesley's character, which uh, I'm not sure was necessary, but you know that worked out fine as a as a kind of uh, tee off for the whole for the whole movie. So that was my one contribution, and then my only other contribution was a piece of dialogue where Sandy Bullock's character is you know enamored with all these '80s uh, wisecracking Shane Black type action movies. So, uh, but she but she kind of gets it wrong sometimes. So at one point. They're all they're pissed at the bad guy, and she says to uh, to Stallone, you know, let's go out and blow these guys. And then I had to, and so that was my line, and then you know, Spartan's response is away, blow them away. That that is really pretty much the totality of my contribution to Demolition Man. It was um, it was good money for the amount of time I spent on it. Um, I went to the set a few times, um, hung out with uh, Marco and. Brembia, the director, and and Sly and Joel, and uh, you know it was really quite a pleasant experience. But I can't say that I brought much to it. And and in all candor, I really always had a bit of a hard time with with the humor in the movie. It 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 feel it felt a little forced to me. It had a kind of a it, it just it felt very Dan Waters to me, which is why I said to Joel, you know, you really want Dan Waters to write this because that's the tone of the movie you want. You want it. It's not a straight action movie. It's a kind of a not a spoof, but there there's a there's a parody element to it. There's a there's a sense of humor about it, and I think that's really what you want to go for. And and I think that that's what you know that's what Sarah Bullock brings, and that's kind of what Sly wanted to do at that time. And and so eventually, he listened to me, and he hired Dan Waters, and that's I think it's really his. I think it's Dan Waters' vision. When you started working on it, was there much humor? Because I read an early draft by Peter Lenkov, and it was very much just a straight action film. And there's this whole thing of when the characters are defrosted, their like biological clocks go into overdrive, and they start getting really old really fast. I don't remember that. That's actually a pretty cool plot point. Um, but but you're right. I think it was initially a very much a straightforward sort of futuristic action movie. By the time I came to it, though, they had already started embroidering it with this slightly sort of arch, sort of tongue-in-cheek, let's make fun of the 80s in the future. And and, and, and and the characters are very kind of, you know, Lewis Carroll a bit. And I think that was already there. I don't know who brought that. There may have actually, now that I think about it, been an interim draft. Dan may have actually come in and done, and done a pass. And maybe Joel probably felt that that went too far in the in the comedic realm, and they brought me in to sort of to try and pinpoint the the action beats and make it a little bit more sort of a straightforward uh, action movie with with humor, which is Joel's strong suit. I mean, that was Lethal Weapon, that was Die Hard. That's what all, all sort of his biggest successes are. That blend. I don't remember it being sort of a flat out comedy, which I kind of think the movie is at the end of the day. Writers always have such an interesting career in so far as, you know, your name is nowhere on the finished version of that, um, other than, you know, running across an, an errant script. What are some of the other films that you might have rewritten that we wouldn't know that your name was attached to at some point? You know, I haven't done a lot of um, script doctoring. I had a deal with Fox for a period in the 90s when my career was sort of in a fallow point and they asked me to develop 
films a, um, a short-lived arm of Fox called uh, Fox Family, which Chris Melodondri, who, you know, create uh, Blue Sky Animation and, and the Minions and all that stuff. But before that, he wanted to do uh, family films. And it, we were at this sort of strange uh, um, crossroads in, in movies where, uh, you know, Disney was, was kind of the only game. They made one movie. They made a movie called Dunstan Checks In. And, and, and I had a bunch of pitches. I wanted to revive the time tunnel and I wanted a long formed, I think, ill advisedly revised, uh, uh, revamped the Planet of the Apes. So I wanted to, I wanted to escape Planet of the Apes as a remake because I think it's a great way into that mythology that you can do for a price, you know, in, in, in present day. They said no. But I did work on a thing they made called, it was basically based on Treasure Island. And then Disney made Disney made Treasure Planet a few years ago, but it was anim- It was an animated film, and I can't actually remember the name of it. But I worked on that a little bit. I worked on their Anastasia animated film. The only other doctoring I can think of is Joel asked me to come in on Lethal Weapon Four and uh, come up with some stuff, and uh, I came up with a set piece for that movie, which is uh, Riggs and Murtar are in a chase on a freeway and. They shoot up a ramp of a of an auto transport and smash through the window. They drive on the eighth floor of an office building, and then the and then the car explodes out the other side. And that was uh, Dick Donner just loved that. He thought that was great. So that was that was the best money I ever made. Actually, <laughs> that took me about five minutes, and they ended up filming it about three weeks later. But I was on the movie for about two weeks, coming up with action beats and character stuff. And uh, but again, my name is not on it. I don't I, I don't consider that I really had that much of a contribution except for that one set piece. And that's pretty much it. I'm, uh, I'm not happy being a gun for hire writer. I never have been the movies that I've, that I've written that have been sort of, that have gone in other directions like, uh, like house or, uh, if looks could kill or ricochet, which I briefly was going to direct for Joel. And, uh, you know, once, once other writers come in and start tinkering with it and I, I sort of lose my sense of ownership and I'd rather, I'd rather either be the guy that shepherds it through to the end on like the films that I'm just sort of wash my hands of it and say, you know, good luck guys. N- not that I wouldn't do it. Not that I wouldn't do it, but, uh, I just don't get that. There's, I, there haven't been that, that many, uh, you know, people think of me as a, as either a, a intellectual property creator or a writer or, uh, who writes my own things or, or, you know, less so as a director, but the, uh, I'm just not considered a, a, a script doctor. I know you probably can't say very much at all about the predator, but I'm curious, did you have fun working on that? Uh, one of the highlights of my career, actually, um, you know, I, I basically gave Shane his first job as a screenwriter, which was asking him to write the monster squad, which he wrote the first draft. And then I came in and, and sort of, tinkered with it to make it, you know, shootable. And then I directed it. And so this is really going back to it's old home week. It's going back to square one. We just did it the other way around as I wrote the first draft on the predator and, and then Shane has been tinkering with it and, and directed it, but, but he allowed me to, con- to continue to tinker with him. So I was on the set for most of the shoot and really learned a, a lot you know, we have a wonderful cast and, and Shane is really, he's, he's sort of the anti Aaron Sorkin more than happy with a talented cast to let them 
you know, create and play and improvise. And so um, the final script is really a collaboration between me and Shane and the, and the cast. It was a, it was a great, great time. I have to say, I'm so excited to see Jake Busey coming back and kind of being his father's son in this. <laughs> well, that was Shane's idea. Jake is a great guy and wonderful actor. He's only had fun with it. Predator 2 is one of my favorite guilty pleasures, so I'm really glad to see that you guys are working that into the, the overall thing. Yeah, I mean, we wanted to do a sequel instead of like a reboot, you know, instead of just sort of a remake. We wanted to, to expand, you know, create a story that takes place in the in the mythology of the existing movies that we like, which are the first two, really. I happen to like is the best of the two for for all of its uh, for all of its uh, assets. It's, it's a little it's a, it's, a, it's a fairly goofy movie, but but anyway. So yeah, we we don't acknowledge the ABP movies, but we do acknowledge the others. Can I ask what are you working on now? Uh, Shane and I are doing a pilot for a uh, reimagining of uh, Steed and Mrs. Peel, the Avengers from the '60s uh, spy series. I'm just uh, almost done with the first draft on that, and uh, it's for Warner Brothers. We don't have a we don't have a home for it yet, but uh, I'm very excited. It's, it's my favorite thing I've done in years and years. And then uh, we, you know we got the movie coming out in September, so there's a lot of stuff on on our plates, and uh, it's um, it's actually quite uh, quite a nice position to be in. I hope you like the movie. It's strange. I just got to warn you. It's an odd. It's a, it's a, it's a very strange and uh, interesting uh, movie. I don't think it's what necessarily what people will expect it to be. And, and I think we're really with with the fact that we could just bring ourselves to it. And you know, here's the here's the one here's the predator we want to make. I don't think anybody who saw the second one would ever think that that's where it went after the first one. So I think this is only fair that the the third or fifth would go that same way well you also have the, the director of uh, of you know the nice guy so you have to really bear that in mind Is the time in the show when we hear from screenwriter Daniel Waters. Was this your second time working with Joel Silver? It was the last, my third time working with Joel Silver. You're, you're not keeping track, Mike. We, we've done, we've we've talked about all of my Joel Silver films. Bear Lane, Hudson Hawk. Yeah, I forgot Fort he was Bear involved Lane, with Hudson, Hudson Hawk. Yeah. 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 What was he like to work with? 
Oh my, he, you know, he, he was, I mean, I look back and I go, did I have to do three with him? But, you know, I'm glad, glad I did one, you know, I mean, you know, he was such an entertaining force of nature and he was somebody who loved movies. Like I never, sometimes when I hear Jerry Bruckheimer speak and other big producers, I don't get a sense that they love movies as much as Joel does. And it was always entertaining working with him and definitely he, you know, he was larger than life and you know, you, I just remember, like, just, like, he was just funny to talk about movies. We ended up, a group of us ended up going to the premiere of Alien 3, and he would just come back and, like, he just ran off on this rant, like, you know, it was like, okay, you got, you got 12 old British guys, and then you got a black guy wears glasses. Can't one of the British guys wear glasses? Can't one of them have a parrot? Help us tell, tell these people apart. And he's like, visual effects. You see all those people, the visual credits? I want, I want to pick out a name, put them against the wall and say, okay, what did you actually do? Come on. But it was kind of like that 20, 24 hours a day, which, you know, um, yeah, I mean, it's funny looking. Demolition Man was kind of the last, like, I mean, when I look back at my, my career, my quote unquote career, it was bizarre in that, you know, here I as a, you know, guy in a video store from Indiana writes Heather's get some acclaim and then I got on this merry-go-round and you know I call it a failing upwards montage where like I just kept working you know I went from Ford Fairlane and before Ford you know before Ford Fairlane came out I made to get make sure to get a job doing Hudson Hawk and then uh-oh got to jump off that. then Hudson Hawk I got my job on Batman Returns before Hudson Hawk came out then Batman Returns I got a job on Demolition Fall and then Demolition Man was Demolition Man was kind of like the last okay you know, I'm I'm doing well in that I keep getting another job before my other job comes out. That way, people keep hiring me. But at the same time, it's like, wait a minute, what ha- what happened to the guy who wrote Heather's? And so, like, I, after Demolition Man, I kind of got off the merry-go-round, and then then you have this other thing where, like, okay, when you do write try to personal movies, they don't get made, and some, suddenly, like, I'm in the wilderness for. 10 years making these more arty movies that never get made. And like, sometimes when I think about like what I loved about Demolition Man, it's like, geez, I, I shouldn't have abandoned Joel completely. Or I shouldn't have abandoned that kind of filmmaking completely. Like, you know, like why would it still be calling me we, after this? Who knows what we have left? Cause we'll have to work on happy campers next. Oh, geez. <laughs> Somewhere four people are listening. Yeah, can't wait. <laughs> yeah, people are clamoring for it. Although it's funny, you look on IMBD about anything. Every movie is somebody's favorite movie. <laughs> it is very funny. I've seen him parodied in other things. Like I think Saul Rubinick was trying to channel him in True Romance. Have you ever seen anybody come close to capturing the silver energy. Well, there, I mean, well, there, there's a there's a sketch on SCTV where basically Rick Moranis is doing Joel, and it's like as a talk show. It's like and like he just moving his legs and yelling and is in a bad bad posture and like you know and they, they, like he's bringing out crew members and shouting. They don't know what you do. They don't know what you do. These people and it was like pretty much like the Joel Silver playbook, but like. No, nobody can really find it as much, but I, you know, I think nobody does Joel like Joel does. Though, like even his little bit in Who Frames Roger Rabbit, you know, like get a sense of Joel. But yeah, and no, I feel like he's I feel like even The Matrix was a great, amazing film. But it it was a you know 
That's not the Joel I know. I like the trashy Joel, like, you know. And and it's funny, like, just, you know, hearing him talk about Die Hard, uh, which is a masterpiece, is that, like, you know, a lot of that was done on the fly. And, like, you know, talking to Steve D'Souza, it was just like, I can't believe that what I thought was is a perfect machine. Even that was done with the Joel Silver style of chaos, which is like, which is like, wait a minute. What if the power goes out and the power is what turns makes the safe open? Like you know, it's come up, they came up with that on the set, and here I'm thinking, here I'm thinking it's a well-oiled screenplay. But yeah, I still, I still, yeah, I still remember we I was watching um, Lethal Weapon with my family at Christmas when I first got a call from Joel Silver saying like you know, uh, come to Fort Fairlane, which you know, how is to Fort Fairlane? Probably not the. Thank God there wasn't Rotten Tomatoes back then because uh, that's probably a bit of an elevator drop, but. But, um, but uh, you know, yes, like I say, I look back fondly, probably should have done two of them, you know, but, uh, you know, cer- certainly, certainly like, you know, us working together, we enjoyed each other personally and we had a great, like, but I feel like it ended up being, I would put, you know, I was a giraffe and he was a rhinoceros and our movies ended up being a, a rhinoceros with a giraffe's head and like, you know. There's going to be certain people like that. Very few people, you know, like, hey, you don't see that every day. So, like, I think that, you know, the make, you know, because I can't, you know, to me, I can't take, I can't play an action movie straight, you know. And Joel knows that. And Joel, Joel loves action movies. He loves comedy. He just, he just wants the audience to be constantly entertained. And we both have kind of a, um, a way of looking at plotting where, where it's just like, why can't the climax be the next scene? Where like, you know, everything's so obsessed with third act and three act structure now, like, well, why don't we just make the climax the next scene? That way we can have a new climax 15 minutes later that you just keep pushing the story, you know, so, so it's just an entertainment machine. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't work. Where was Demolition Man at when you came to the project? I had already made that decision that I had talked about, my my big noble decision to, like, I'm going to go back and do a serious movie, like, after Batman. But then Joel basically came to me and said, because, you know, they, they were they were they were in production. You know, this was not like, you know, you know, pre-production kind of like, you know, way in the distance of like we're thinking about doing a science fiction movie. They, Stallone was already hired. I don't think Wesley Snipes was hired, but. Um, he was in, they were in negotiations with, with Wesley Simpson. Basically, they had a script. Peter Lenkoff wrote it. Guy hates my guts. I don't, I don't know why. I mean, I guess I know why, because I turned his movie into a comedy, but he, he's, and he's, he's still pretty angry at me. But, um, we met each other briefly in a laser disc store to tell you how far back that was. But, you know, and everything is, everything in Demolition Man, like the bones of it was in that first script of basically a good guy is frozen, a bad guy is frozen, the bad guy breaks out in the future. And they, you know, is much more specific to the character, but the character, only this character from the past could really catch this guy. So they, they, you know, set him out and he's chasing after a guy. But, you know, and I'm reading like, eh, it's all right. It's a, you know, it's a science fiction action movie. But like, and, it'd be, you know, and Joel thought it was kind of live there. Like, you know, we, we're actually making this movie. You know, you gotta, you gotta give it life. And I'm like, well, if I did it, I would, you know, there's so much, there's so much like Woody Allen sleeper comedy that's dormant there right now. And I, you know, and, and it was basically, I would go completely extreme. Like, like the future was not 
the future it is in the actual movie where it was it was kind of not really distinguished like i say you know completely i you know i had gone to you know i'd gone to city walk in universal city which had just opened around the time which was kind of like this if you're not familiar with it a big kind of shopping center up on the hill that keeps all the homeless people away and it's shiny and everything's like neon and you know, it's, 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 you know, there's, and everything's clean and beautiful. And I'm like, what if all of LA was city walk? And like, what if, you know, you had these rules and you could make fun of political correctness and like, you know, and, and literally there was no guns. And like, I, you know, just what if the only gun was in a museum and that's where you had to get it. And so I just completely made it completely extreme and let's bring in the comedy and like, you know, and so, uh, so, so, you know, so, but, you know, but at this point, I still didn't want to do it. Like, you know, I'm just, just throwing things out, like, you know, but then this is back in the day where, you know, I always, this, this is going to make me sound like a, a jerk, but, you know, back in those days, they actually paid a, screenwriters a lot of money. <laughs> and like, and when you don't want to do something, it's amazing how the, I mean, but if you can't play that you don't, it's like you can't play hard to get. You generally got to not want to do it. And then that's when they'll like throw these just insane sums of money at you. And probably this is getting into why Peter Lankoff hates me. Because I, I only really was paid to work two weeks on Demolition Man. And I won't even tell you how much I got paid a week. It's, it's even in, even in those days, in today's dollars, I don't even want to think about it. But it was a lot of money. And it was an offer I couldn't refuse. And, you know, this is getting off topic, but it was, it was, it was the, um, Johnny Carson's last episodes that Johnny Carson was taping his last episodes of The Tonight Show. And I figured out that the only way I could get in is if I got in line in the middle of the night for a show that didn't start 5.30 the next day. And so, so it was like, well, geez, what am I going to do for all that time? And I go, my God, I'll do the index cards for Demolition Man. <laughs> so it's like I almost took the job just because I had to wait in line for 20 hours. And I did, like, end up, you know, working out the the beats and the plot of, you know, and, it, you know, it wasn't a lot of change beats and plot-wise, but it was like this extreme kind of comic vision. And I just, you know, went crazy on that. Wasn't even a good episode. Like everybody remembers the Robin Williams Bette Midler episode. I was the night before, which was Roseanne Barr and Richard Harris. But you know, it's because of that episode that Demolition Man got written. But um, but I packed a lot of those two weeks as far as like I really changed, you know. And it's and and if you know, I'm a good writer of WGA arbitration letters, but I didn't think I was going to get first credit. But you can tell. The spirit of my letter was the spirit of the movie, where it suddenly had this comic sensibility. So I'm sure people had all these charts, pulleys, and beakers of why he should get sole credit. But then they could tell by my voice that it was my voice that kind of won out, even though I worked on the project for two weeks. I love the idea of you standing in line for Carson just working on the screenplay. Yeah, yeah, and I had a fr- I had a friend with me that I ended up having to give some money because I ended up bouncing all these things off him and he. And he was kind of more of a science fiction person. So like we, we, you know, and then of course, probably skipping ahead to one of your most famous questions, I ended up calling a friend of mine, his fellow screenwriter, Larry Karaszewski, wrote Ed Wood and People vs. Larry Flynn, People vs. O.G. Simpson. Um, basically, I called him and I said, dude, I'm, try- I'm trying to think of some future stuff here. I got to like, you know, pound out this demolition, man. But, you know, I'm trying to make it more of a comedy, like, like, you know, 
And he's like, dude, I can't, I got to call you back. I'm taking a shit. And like, I'm, I'm going to the bathroom and like, and like, Oh wait, dude, before you go, like, well, yeah, let's, let's come up with something to the bathroom. And he's just like, I don't know. I came to the bathroom. And, and I said, okay, bag of shells. I'm going to do something with the bag of shells. So, so that is the ignominious uh, origin of the three seashells, which, which, you know, which I don't have a, a defined way of how the three seashells are used, but it was kind of like from there that, that, you know, just having a friend saying, I got a bag of shells next to me in my toilet. But I ended up, you know, creating that thing. And, and that thing is hilarious. And that just, when people find out a right demolition man, it's like, they, you know, it's like the rosebud. They're just obsessed with what, how to use the three seashells. And like, you know, I'm a, you know, it's heartbreaking to tell them I didn't think in that, that in depth and that far ahead. And like I went, I was on jury duty and I ha- basically, I, you know, the judge was, Judge had, you know, was curious and asked me my credits when I meant demolition man. The, the bailiff came up to me afterwards, like, well, you have to tell me, sir, the three seashells. Like, like, just like, oh, come on, man. The names that you came up with, or I'm assuming that you came up with, Lenina Huxley, Simon Phoenix, all these names. You know, and this is the Hudson Hawk rule, too, if it's, because there's other accredited writers. If it's ridiculous, it's mine. Like, you know, anything that's silly, like, hmm, that's a change in tone. That, that's, that's, that's mine. Yes. Yeah. Lenina, Lenina Huxley, like, r- really lazy of like, you know, hey, the lead character for Brave New World and the writer of Brave New World with the last name. Well, let's, 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 let's make some sausage here. But kind of like Catwoman in Batman Turns, um, who is the, you know, she was my main focus in Batman Turns, like, you know, I could care less about Batman and Penguin, but I, you know, I love writing Catwoman. Um, you know, Lenny Huxley became my favorite character of Demolition Man, where like, you know, you got these macho guys fighting it up, but it's, you know, her and all her, all her, like, you know, mis, misremembered lines from 80s action movies herself of, there's a new shepherd in town and, He's finally matched his meat, and he really likes his ass. Like, listen, that was my favorite stuff to write. And and and, and Sandra Bullock, who you know, and, and you know, sad to say, a, a terrific actress, Lori Petty, was cast in the role. And then Joel just on a whim woke up allergic to her one day, and then just fired her, and then brought this woman that hadn't really done a lot, Sandra Bullock, who who just thrived and thrived with the comedy and just like, you know, she really popped in that movie. And we ended up like, Joel ended up showing, uh, Yonda Bont scenes of her when they were casting speed. And, and, you know, Sandra to this day will give credit for like demolition man, getting her speed and speed got of the rest of the world. Well, yeah, it was so refreshing to have such a strong female character and somebody who, even though she's kind of the butt of some of the jokes is still so out there and like can take care of herself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's like, you know, it, you know, and like sometimes I make fun of what I call strong female roles because it's just a man's role and they just change the name and like, Oh my God, you're a lawyer. You're a woman. Oh my God, you must be strong female role. Like, you know, to me, like having somebody deliver comedy that can deconstruct the macho guys around her, that, that, that that's a more interesting character. And just somebody who kicks ass. But yeah, I mean, I thought she she was just terrific down the line. Now, so you write this in two weeks, approximately. Are you sticking around once the shooting starts? Yeah, I, I dropped in from time to time. I had, you know, I like, 
I mean, you know, poor Marco Rambilla, the director, was kind of much far, much more from in our world. And, you know, he could intellectually talk the talk with you about, like, you know, you know what he was doing with, you know, the architecture and the designs and, like, things like that. But I think he was a bit of a babe in the woods with Joel and the action department and, like, this is the way you make an action movie. And so I felt like, you know, I had to be there, his translator to work with Joel. So kind of like, yeah, I definitely dropped in for time to time. And then, yeah, it was, it was, a fun, it was definitely seemed like a fun shoot. I mean, I remember going to like bringing my friends to the, there's a building that blows up at the start of the movie and like just bringing all my friends and we're, we're sitting on top of another building across, across from the building that blows up. And we, you know, we thought we'd be safe and we were safe, but I just remember when the thing blew up, we were, it was, you could feel the heat and it was, it was just like, okay, that was interesting. That probably would have gone to a far further building if I knew. When Wesley Snipes was cast, there, there was suddenly this inner turmoil among everyone of like, okay, what do we say? And you know, you probably couldn't have do it today, but we were sensitive even back then. Oh, so you're saying the one black guy breaks out of, out of prison and he ruins the future so this is like oh god but you know the way wesley like what and wesley was he was so relaxed about that like he's just like there's there's no racism here did you see how much they're paying me for this role that's not racism and he, and and i think you know and he took he took joy in the performance that i think it deflected and he like we were all worried about these things and then i think once you see him and he wants you to see how much he's enjoying himself and it's so sad like Overnight, it seemed like Wesley Snipes became so self-serious that, you know, you almost forget in this movie, he's having a great time and, you know, and and, it, and it's contagious. A lot of times it almost feels like he's the Joker in this movie. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's always that archetype of, of the villain having more fun, especially when especially when Stallone is the, the lead. And, you know, I, and I, I love Stallone's performance. I mean, I think a lot of time when he tries to do comedy. <laughs> he like he puts on his comedy hat like look i'm doing comedy i'm being silly and this one the the comedy works because he completely lets himself be the straight man and underplays everything and i think you know i think it's a great performance well yeah just the cast for this movie is amazing to have nigel hawthorne as raymond cocteau i mean it's like how on earth did that happen since Joel put Alan Rickman in Die Hard, who wasn't really well known to American audiences when he was a Die Hard. Now he's always like trying to, be, you know, he always became obsessed with. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put the British, I'm gonna put the amazing British actor that everybody in England knows into this American movie, and it's gonna class it up, and it's, and it's gonna, you know, make it different. But yeah, Nigel kind of looked down on the affair a little more than I would have liked, but you know, he was, he, 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 again, you put him in the mix and it is, it makes the gumbo that much more interesting. Now I've heard that Wesley Snipes did a little bit of ad libbing on set, but I imagine that Dennis Leary, you guys just kind of let him do his act almost. Yeah, I was, you know, the, if you look at the credits, there's a um, guy who I, I've, I'm, I've since become befriended, uh, Robert Renault, that I think he, he brought in much more of the underground element of like, you know, a lot of that was his. Yeah. But yeah, it was definitely, there's a character in one of Philip K. Dick's books called Buster Friendly. It was kind of an entertainer. And so we, we, you know, we named this guy 
Edgar Friendly. I, I guess I did write some because I did write Edgar Friendly. Um, I guess I did write some of this, but um, yeah. So we kind of wanted him to be almost like, uh, sure, the leader of leader of the underground movement and all that. But we 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 didn't want it to be like too too pretentious. We wanted to be like he was also a comic sounding board. And yes, um, you know, we did write some stuff, but he, you know, Dennis Leary did, definitely did do some ad libbing and and even lines that we wrote felt like ad libbing in a, in in in. in in his mouth, in a good way. I think he took, like, I think, you know, at the end, he's just like, okay, you're going to get a little dirtier. You're going to get a little cleaner. And it's like, he's kind of rushing through the theme of the movie, but in a way that makes it unpretentious. And I thought it worked. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the cut scenes? Cause I know that there was more to this film before it ended up coming out. The mother of cut scenes and the mother of cut elements has to be, the daughter that, that that Stallone is, you know, ostensibly spending the movie looking for his long lost daughter that he, when he was put in the cryogenic prison, he had a daughter and now he's looking for her here. And I can tell you, I've been in audiences and and everybody thinks, and nobody talks about it really now, but at the time, especially when you watch in a theater, everybody thinks Sandra Bullock is going to be revealed to be, Sylvester Stallone's daughter. So, like, when you watch the sex scene, there, at least a lot of the audiences I was with, there's this creepy moaning, like, oh, no, oh, this is going to be crazy. Oh, no, it's going to be his daughter. They're going to, some sort of tattoo is going to give it away. And, and, <laughs> but then it doesn't happen. And then you're waiting for the daughter's shoe to drop, and it just never happens. And the thing is, we did shoot an elaborate, of her, him finding his daughter underground and his daughter is older than him. It was played by a great New York actress, Elizabeth Ruscio, R-U-S-C-I-O, who is in a, an amazing, um, getting off track here, an amazing Showtime miniseries called Home Fires. That was the first time I ever saw Julia Lewis. That is an incredible piece of work, but that's another thing. Uh, but, but she, unfortunately she got cut out of the movie because it was kind of, it was a sudden burst of maudlinness. That and so we just kind of avoided the issue. I think, you know, and the great thing is that I, this is and Demolition Man did fine domestically, but it really did well overseas. So of course they get a call from Joel. What do you think of this? Meryl Streep is Stallone's daughter for the sequel. What do you think? I'm like, okay, you get Meryl on the set, I'll come out. But like, you know, but um, but that that was definitely a biggie. You know, obviously the seashells was a bit of a runner, but there was a whole scene of um, Snipes talking to Stallone about like, hey, those three seashells. So what's the deal? Like, you know, and it was funny. It was like in the middle of an action scene and, you know, he's asking about the seashells and, you know, it was just timing and everything. And and, you, and we cut it out. But I was like, and you sure heard me screaming in the editing room. um the editor of the movie was, was a, a real badass, some Stuart Baird, who's kind of, I jokingly referred to as like Doc. He ended up directing a lot of movies himself, but I always thought of him as Dr. Smith from Lost in Space. He was always like very villainous and sniveling. And, and, but, but I, but I would like put up a fight. Like, you understand, you can't do the seashell joke at the end where Stallone says, and what about those seashells to Sandra Bullock? And nobody's going to laugh if you don't have one more mention. You know, a half hour after the first, the last mention, then nobody listened to me. And premiere, packed audience, audience really digging the movie. And then at the end, and how about those seashells? Dead silence. 
that's as Joel comes up to me, you know, as people are flying out of the theater and just like, and he's like, shut up, don't say it. And, it, but then he's like, Hey, do you think we could just put a laugh track in at the end? And like, people will assume that other people are laughing. Like, you know, <laughs> you think we could do that? Like, and he was totally serious. Of all the bad guys that get defrosted at the end, We've got Jesse the Body Ventura, who at this point is not a nothing. So it's like, well, what happened with this guy? Well, I yeah, I can't say he had a huge Justice League um, backstory. And thing. Yeah, I mean, I think you know that 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 they, they the, the 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 number on their checks was as if they did had a big supporting role, but I don't think they really had like a. A great role. I was like, wait, Jesse Ventura is one of these schmoes in the back? Like, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like, and it, I guess Jesse had done Predator with Joel. Is that right? In, or one of the Predators with Joel and like just said, Hey, you want to come out and hang out with Stallone and hang out with Wesley, Wesley Stein and get paid a lot of money? And it's like, hey, you know, Jesse's not going to say no. He, you know, he's not going to say, or, or, or he could have said, but he certainly didn't say, well, I need my role to big bigger. Like, you know, he's just like, so I certainly, I, I didn't write anything for him. I mean, we had another writer who wrote on the, wrote on the, more on the production side, Jonathan Lemkin, who I, you know, I've read, read one of his drafts and I don't, you know, I'm not sure how much more he added, but he was, but he, 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 he was a very good, he was one of my favorite rewriter writers coming in after me like because i think he really did some great complimentary stuff for instance um i think it's his joke when after the three seashells mentioned he goes he goes over to the he goes over to the, the cussing machine that charges that that finds you every time you cuss and he starts cussing in the machine and he, getting the getting all these papers and all these violations and using his toilet paper that was jonathan which i thought that was like a great spin on something i had come up with is there any truth then to the rumor that the daughter does survive like kind of hanging out in the background because i don't see uh elizabeth ruscio listed at all in the credits oh she's not listed in the credits this is mean yeah i certainly don't i mean i certainly don't remember seeing her in the movie like that's for sure and i had a friend i said a friend who matt patterson <laughs> Shout out to my friend who who worked for weeks in that underground thing because he had developed this like drum machine that you could walk around with and like and like he was going to be somebody that and they they did these elaborate like tracking shots with him and I'm like, I'm so I was so excited for my friend like oh my god because he invented this thing that's going to be amazing for your invention and like and then you know the, the huge tracking shots got cut too so. Yeah, you mentioned working with uh, Marco Brambilla, and it seems like this was his first movie, like the first yeah. thing that he directed. And how on earth do we know how he managed to to pull that off? Joel is an art lover; he's an art collector. I know Marco had done some artwork, and you know, and you got to remember that Joel gave, for better or for worse, uh, Robert Longo, a much more famous artist, a uh, uh, movie to direct in Johnny Mnemonic, and like. Um, so like you know he was he was always willing to he, I think Josh I mean Joel always thought he brings the movie making he bring he's like the Louis B Mayer he's the guy who brings it and like so he can bring in like more people from other realms like he doesn't need a meat and potatoes director he thinks that he can guide them it doesn't always work out but I think he was willing to take a chance but it is funny to think about because Mark 
Marco is a much more soft-spoken guy, and I think he was in over his head. You know, and I, I would say a similar thing about Michael Lehman, who was kind of like, you know, like you know, directed Heather's, and you know, comes from a background of directing more like low-budget, you know, subversive comedies, and like, and Joel's like, come to the circus, you know, and you know, you'll have fun, and like, but like, I think both Michael Michael Lehman and Marco Brambilla just don't have that actually personality that I would say Rennie Harlan, who I did Ford Fairlane with, that Rennie Harlan knows he's got to be a bit of an asshole. Like he knows he's got to walk in the set and like be a little over the top and bombastic. Something kicked in on Marco and Michael Lehman were like, and it's like, Jesus, this is ridiculous. This is, <laughs> this is insanity. Like, you know, I think, I think, you know, a lot of times you have to revel in the insanity. I know right now you're kind of putting the finishing touches on, uh, is it hashtag fashion victim? I think we're losing the, fa- the hashtag, but it is called fashion victim, yes. The shorthand of it is it's the Dexter Wears Prada, where it's the woman in the fashion industry who becomes a serial killer to help like get rid of the idiots who are in the fashion industry. But, you know. Although the film, the show is very pro-fashion, but um, yeah, I mean, we just did the pilot. We're just, I mean, we're literally turning it into the network tomorrow, um, and we'll see if we get picked up. Hopefully, we will, and you know, and hopefully, we'll get to shoot in New York City. But yeah, amazing lead actress named Willa Fitzgerald, who was in the TV show Scream, but I think she's going to become a big star on every level. But um, yeah, it's it's definitely the most me thing I've written. That's been produced in a long time. Are you back to working with your brother on this? Yes, but I think we, you know, we, you know, we another Mike White production that will never happen is Vampire Academy because I think the that I did with my brother, but the 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 ingredient in the stew that we don't have this time was Harvey Weinstein. So, you know, we weren't sexually harassed, but we were we were certainly harassed in other ways. Well, it's it's funny at the time when I would talk about working with Harvey, I would refer to him as like. He, I would this way I would refer to him. He he's a rapist who wants to be told how good he is in bed, and then so, so then then when you know the actual stuff started coming out, I was just like, oh, well, I was speaking metaphorically, but you know, you weren't uh, doing one of those uh, Seth MacFarlane in jokes then. Yes. Did I read that uh, Gina Gershon is in Fashion Victim? Oh yes, she's in it too. She's well, you know, we had this kind of boss character. We were afraid that it was going to be too much like. Anna Wintour or Meryl Streep in Devil Wears Prada, but you know, just Gina, you, you cast Gina Gershon and it becomes something completely different. And you know, we we lost our fear of those comparisons right away because she's. Let me just say that we all had to do a sexual harassment seminar, you know, the week a week before shooting. And if you want good comedy, do a sexual harassment seminar with Gina Gershon where she's like, so. If I see an extra and say, that extra's hot, I want to fuck him. Even if I don't want to fuck him, I can't even say it. She seems like she would be a lot of fun. Is she down to earth? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I was a little, I was a little, I was a little afraid just because she could go either way with like her kind of raunchy over the top performance, but she's very fun. She's very fun and she really enjoys this. Yeah. It almost seems like she could be doing um, uh, like a Janice Dickerson type role in this. Yeah, but she she gets to run the magazine, yes. So so she gets. I think she she gets to speak Chinese and be professional, while at the same time being very genius. So I think she I think she's having a good time. 
to let you in on a little secret, I'm a huge fan of like Project Runway and America's Next Top Model. Oh, and stuff, well, so. hey, you've been keeping a secret on me. I watch those shows religiously and never miss one. So they split the focus groups into two categories, men and women. And the women were very positive and very excited. And we happened to get just the the Beavis and Butthead Pete Davidson sad live focus group of all time for for and it was just it was miserable and I'm like there's got to be some there's got to be some guys out there who who, who are going to get this so we just didn't get them in any of them in that room like I mean obviously we'll appeal more to women but still I I know there's men out there who love fashion and love Dan Waters comedy come on well when I saw that uh, Andre Leon Talley was in I was like ooh that's awesome well. Can you turn the mic off for a second? No, uh, I'm kidding. I mean, but uh, I think, I mean, obviously don't put this on the radio or put it on podcast, but. uh... How is it working with your brother as a collaborator? He's definitely much more of a left brain, straight A student, loves math kind of guy, while I'm just the complete right brain, crazy like, you know, it's like, you know, I, I've directed a couple of movies in my time. You know, I never met a lunch family I didn't like. And kind of the whole make your day thing <laughs> was not big with me. And I think he he actually loves the shooting. He loves like to me, to me, I love pre-production. and I love the editing room. But like going out there, having to direct every day was like, you know, a caveman having to get pelts for the winter and like get bison meat. You know, it was, it was tough for me. So it's great to have somebody actually doing the directing and, and he said you know and just just now i just got this email from him about all these changes he wants to make that are so like decibels and minute things that i didn't even notice like you know so i definitely definitely like that although there is a, some resentment in that you know you know i saw jaws when i was a teenager and knew right then that i wanted to make movies and write movies he didn't go see jaws he didn't go see star wars he didn't see why people would go to a movie theater when it's summer out and you could play. Didn't care about the film industry. Was going to be a doctor. Then he saw that I had some success with Heather's. He said, "Oh, I, well, I didn't know anybody could do it." Then, like, I paid for him to go to film school, and now he, now he's much more. You know, he, you know, I make little Heather's, and then he makes Mean Girls, which makes more money. And so it's just like there's there is something unfair. Of like, wait a minute, you didn't want to be in this industry. If it makes you feel better, I didn't like House of Yes. Whoa. Uh, that was that, that was before he sold out. That was, I mean, usually Ghost of Girlfriends Pass is the one that people come come down on upon. I do own a DVD copy of Just Like Heaven. I don't know why I own a DVD copy of Just Like Heaven, but I do. Oh well, you know, you know, you know who's quietly my brother's biggest fan is Tarantino, where he loves he loves Just Like Heaven, loves Ghost of Girlfriends Pass. He thinks like Mark is George Cooker. Like, it's very funny. Well, thank you again for your time. It's always good to talk with you. All right, man. Great to talk with you. The 
this wasn't even your plan Don't mess around with the demolition man And last but not least, we'll hear from production designer David L. Schneider. In the early 90s, it seems like you weren't getting too much sleep. There are just so many movies that you worked on, one after another after another. Or it looks like you did Super Mario Brothers and Demolition Man back-to-back. Which one did you end up doing first? Which one um, did you work on first? Because I know you never know with uh, the way production schedules are what happens first when a movie comes out second or later. On Super Mario Brothers, I uh, went in to interview, and uh, I met with Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jenkel, the directors, husband and wife at the time, and now they're uh, they have a top commercial company. I mean, really top commercial, called MJZ, as in zebra. So they don't make movies anymore, but they're really successful commercials. So they called me in, and uh, I met with Roland Jaffe. You know who he is, of course. He directed The Killing Killing Fields, amongst others. I had a good meeting, and then I had a call from Fred Caruso, who since that time is a, a, a lifelong friend, a really close friend. And they said, we don't want him because we're afraid that the movie will look too much like a combination of Blade Runner and Theory's Big Adventure. So they hired uh, a guy named Wolf Kroger, who uh, did a picture uh, that I like very much that I turned down, The Year of the Dragon, with Mickey Mickey Rourke. So it was a Dino De Laurentiis picture, and I had met Michael Cimino on it. And I thought he was a little crazy, but he was very, very nice to me. But he had just done Heaven's Gate, and I didn't know if I wanted to be, you know, beaten up again after, you know, my time on Blade Runner, which is very tough. The director said they didn't want me, so they hired Wolf Kroger, who's a wonderful designer who's uh who lives in France and in Montreal, French, Canadian, European. They had a meeting with him and he was sitting at his table drawing, Wolf Kroger was, and Rocky and Annabelle, who had been animators, took out a pen, a ballpoint pen, and started writing on his drawing. And he was so infuriated that he quit the show. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I don't tell you how to direct and you don't write on my drawings. I quit. They called me back again. And I went back again for another meeting with Roland Jaffe after they fired Wolf Kroger and had, they had to pay him off, by the way. You know, he had a pay or play deal. I met with Roland Jaffe, who was really upset because he had already fired the first director. Uh, who was the guy who did Mom and Dad Save the World. They fired him. Then they fired Wolf Kroger. And Roland was tired of paying people off. So I sat with him in a meeting, and he was very aggravated in the meeting that he was meeting with me because he was upset. Not with me, but he was just so tired of it all. He said, okay. So then Fred Caruso called me and said, okay, you've got the job. And he said, do you know why? And I said, why? He said, because Rocky and Annabelle said, he's the guy that did Pee Wee and Blade Runner. Let's get him. And I said, oh, man. Oh, man. What what am I in for? So the making of that film with, with a lot of my, you know, my team uh, was very difficult, constantly changing. Uh, the cement plant where we shot the film 
in Wilmington, North Carolina in the summer. It was always over a hundred degrees. It was always humid. The, the, the cement plant was filled with probably carcinogenic material left over from manufacturing. And it was difficult. They fired the first cameraman so that Roland wouldn't have to fire the directors. So he wanted to fire the directors, but he'd already fired one director. And being a, a member of the Directors Guild of America, he didn't want people to think that his ego was what was generating his firing of directors. So they decided to stick with them, and they fired Peter Levy, who, who went on to have a great career. Uh, last thing he did was House of uh, Lies, which was a beautiful television show on the, I think HBO or Showtime. And so they brought in Dean Semler as the cameraman who had just won the Oscar for Dancing with Wolves. So again, we had this high profile team with directors who had only done one feature, but who were noted for Max Headroom. And they were from England and they had a certain way of working. Uh, they, they didn't agree all the time. I, I want to say that they're very nice people, but the script changes, the set changes, I would start building something and one would say to the other, hey, I didn't approve that. Uh, and the other spouse would say, yeah, but I did. And then there'd be an argument about that. And it went on and on and on and on and on. At the center time frame of the film, Jeffrey Katzenberg came down to see the sets uh, and uh, Joe Roth. And, and, uh, Roger Birnbaum, who I think at the time were with, uh, 20th Century Fox, every, all these jets flying into Wilmington to see the sets because it was a big buzz about the Nintendo movie because of the theme park aspect. There were so many aspects of it that made Disney pay for the movie. So once they bought the movie, which was a very dark kind of movie at the time, that I started on it. Well, they threw out the script and tried to make it like a family-friendly movie. It was a disaster uh, in some ways, but in other ways, uh, on the film, which I worked on and my wife worked on and my my daughter was a, a makeup artist, all of those positive things about it were great. Uh, I met Bob Hoskins on it, who, who became uh, a lifelong friend until he died, and we, we were brought to England to do a picture with him. I did four or five movies with him, and I would have done more had he passed on. So the benefit of Mario Brothers was that it, it, it's a cult favorite because it's a goof. People like it. I've been asked to go to uh, screening, midnight screenings of it to explain what happened. And so we all look at it as a big goof, but it did get the Blu-ray treatment. And, you know, it's talked about quite a bit. So, you know, sometimes you can do a, a cult movie. And have that be popular, uh, even though it failed at the box office. If Jeff Katzenberg and Disney hadn't bought the film and someone else may have, it, it could have succeeded because the original script was great. But as I said, it was Tim Burton dark, like Batman, that kind of dark. And it was a much better film. So they tried to make it friendly for kids and it was going to be theme park rides and all that. And all of it disintegrated when the film failed. So as I was working on that, at the same time, 
Joel Silver was doing uh, a Coen Brothers movie in, in North Carolina, in Wellington, at the same time. When I finished Mario Brothers and I got back to L.A., I had a call from Joel Silver, who somehow had heard all the great things about Super Mario Brothers, how fabulous it was. And plus, Joel's a huge Blade Runner fan. So I went in to meet him uh, at his office, and I was hired on the spot to be the demolition man to replace a guy who was not getting along with the director, Jack Degovia. I was hired immediately to start immediately because they were already in pre-production. For me, I, I had uh, as good a time as one could have at another giant movie. The sets cost about $7 million. It's quite a bit of money in 1994 and 93. I, I had a great crew. I must have had 30 people in the art department. Yeah, I mean, more than Blade Runner. Because at the time, Blade Runner was kind of like, you know, one big giant set on the back lot and all the other sets were on the stage. But on Demolition Man, Way Into the Future, it, it was all over LA and Orange County. You know, it was a lot to do. Plus the cryo prison set alone was 55 tons of steel. It, it was an amazing set. And, and, all, all the props that were that we designed, uh, like we called them the hockey pucks, you know, that everyone was encapsulated in in the cryo prison. We brought in another Academy Award winning team just to do that. We brought in another team just to do the vehicles. We brought in another team just to do uh, all, all the monitors and, and the iPads. We had iPads that were hardwired through the costumes. I don't know if you remember that. All, all the people uh, in the government uh, walked around with iPads before there was an iPad. If you look at the film, you'll see it. And then we used the same uh, technology when they had uh, in the conference room uh, with the leader of the city where we had built the set up on a platform and down below the all the uh, LED screens were programmed to move around and choreographed ahead of time with the actor so that as he walked around the room, the faces would be following him around. So I thought technologically it was closer to the future in some ways than Blade Runner was, you know, but it was 13 years later. So technology had advanced. The, the costumes, you know, that Bob Ringwood did were amazing. There was one meeting that I remember well because at some point, you know, Joel and I had, had to have words because the amount of money that was being spent and Joel would walk through a set with all of his friends and, and I'd be standing around and he, he wouldn't recognize me at all to be part of his, his tours of his sets, not my sets. Same directors and Actors and producers would be taken through the sets. I, I, it got to the point where, you know, it, it, it was, uh, very tough on me. Uh, and, and yet I just, you know, kept going with the work and working with, uh, uh, Marco. And, uh, I, I brought along the, uh, uh, assistant director, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Luis D'Esposito from Mario Brothers. I got him the job on it. And today he, he is the head of production at Marvel Studios. So I could see that Luis D'Esposito was going to go places. 
and and it, it helped to bring as many people as you can that you like, even not in your department, because you know that they'll help you. You know, they'll protect you. They'll watch your back. So Lewis took care of me, and I took care of Lewis, and you know, I felt in some ways I helped him get his job at Marvel by working on all these science fiction films. We had a production meeting, and, and in the production meeting, uh, we were talking about uh, all all the frozen aspects of the show. How are we going to make it look like it's freezing? How are we going to do this scene where the entire cryo prison is frozen when he breaks the uh, the vial before the you know after the big fight during the big fight? And so I started telling Joel about I had to do this and I needed this and that. So Joel, in a meeting of about forty people, you know. Warner Brothers conference room. Uh, he said, uh, uh, what Joel used to do is when he get really excited, he would shake. He would like bounce up and down in his chair and his whole body would shake like he was, uh, having a spasm when he got excited. As a matter of fact, R- Rick Moranis did a great impression of him on SCTV because he had worked with Joel on Streets of Fire. So he had a great impression of him. He, he started rising out of the chair and screaming, he said, uh, uh, David, He's the kind of money you're talking about. It would be cheaper to build the time machine and take the entire cast and crew to the future. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, by the way, I, I I thought that Joel Silver was brilliant. Uh, I I thought he was cruel. I thought he was brilliant. I thought he was funny. Uh, he's a one of a kind guy. And I'm glad I actually had an one experience, no more than one, working with him to see what all the talk was about. And, and, you know, some, sometimes, you know, uh, you know, like he'd walk through the set with Joel Schumacher and all, all, all of the people, all, all, all the great people to show off his sets. And, and, and then as he'd walking off the set as an offhand remark without looking at me, he'd scream. David, I don't see any Blade Runner here, David. Where's Blade Runner? I paid you for Blade Runner. I don't see any Blade Runner. Where's Blade Runner? And his voice would drift off as he would walk off the stage with Joel Schumacher. It was quite an experience. And and I would say that with Joel, the way I can describe him, and I don't think he can hurt me anymore because he's sort of like, you know, on the outs at the moment. He's not doing well at all financially or otherwise. The best way I can describe it is when he would have a moment, I can call it, because I've seen him like at least a half a dozen times do that. After he was finished with a rage, he would be completely calm and serene as if he had an orgasm. He had an, he, he would have an anger orgasm and then he would be very serene. And he would be nice and, do you want a coffee? Can I get you a coffee? You know, <laughs> it's really bizarre to see. He would have moments where, uh, the director, Marco Brambilla, would, uh, uh, he would disagree with something that the art department was doing instead of coming to me to talk about it. In the beginning, he never did it again. He would go to Joel and complain uh, about something he didn't like, like a chair, a simple thing like a chair that he could have come to me and I could have given him 20 chairs. And 
he would walk over with Marco, and then he would scold me and the set decorator, uh, Bobby Gould. And then when Joel was finished complaining to us, he would look at Marco as, as if he was alone in the room with him. And he would say, what are you complaining about? He said, what are you complaining about? What if they were working with a real director like Joel Schumacher instead of a piece of shit like you? <laughs> and, and Marco would just, you know, smile, you know, like a Cheshire cat smile and, and take a beating because it was his first movie and he couldn't do anything. Otherwise he'd quit. And by the way, Marco only did one movie after that and never did another because I think the experience with Joel and, and in one more instance, we were in Joel's office. Marco asked for a couple extra days of shooting. So Joel and his bungalow starts going up and down his chair, screaming and screaming and yelling. So the two producers and I got up and walked out of the bungalow and we're standing outside the bungalow and it was kind of like California winter time and the smoke was coming out of the chimney of his, his, uh, his Spanish, beautiful Spanish bungalow. And so Jim Herbert, uh, the line producer and I were standing outside and Dick Donner, whose office was next door, came out and said, hi, how are you guys doing? What are you doing? And Jim Herbert said, we're looking up at the chimney to see what color smoke it is to see if there's a new pope. I thought that was really funny from from Jim Herbert, especially who had no sense of humor. I mean, there, there, there's so many stories about that. The first day of shooting, it rained. So the cryo prison was still under construction uh, because it took so many people to put that together. I mean, you... You've seen it, and you can imagine the amount of work that went into that set. I, I thought it was pretty fabulous myself. They're supposed to shoot exteriors where the helicopter is above the hostage building with uh, Wesley Snipes. It rained, so it couldn't do the helicopter shot. So Joel sold me up. I was at home because I didn't need to be there for that that night. And he said, we have to go to cover set. We have to go to the stage. I said, uh, okay, so I got up from my bed and went to the stage, and it was the scene, the only scene we could shoot with the doors closed to the crier prison was the corridor that went to the crier prison. So they got Sloane in wardrobe, and they put the gown on them, and those slippers that you wear, like, you know, when you're going to uh, a spa. So... They got Stallone there, and they got the the four or six guards that were supposed to walk him down the hall. And the audience is supposed to think they're going to take him and electrocute him or take him to the gas chamber, you know, because no one knows what it is yet. They haven't seen it. So all of a sudden, everything stops, and Sly goes over and talks to Joel. Joel comes over to me and to the wardrobe department and says, okay. Because Sly was not wearing his Cuban heels, the four guards were taller than him. And so they lined up the crew. <laughs> you know, the grips and the electricians and everybody and the crew, like a 100 people. And then Stallone walked down the line with Joel. 
and they picked out four people from the crew, and they sent them to uh, wardrobe and makeup and hair and put costumes on them so they could walk down the hall with Stallone, and he would be taller than them. That took about, I don't know, three or four hours of the first day of shooting. Oh, yes. The, the day that they hired uh, Wesley Snipes, it was a pouring night, and Joel came down to my office in the art department at stage 15 with Sly and with Wesley Snipes to show them all the beautiful artwork on the wall. Because it, it was, we, we had like really great people, like Patris, Patrick Tatopoulos, who's like a, a director now. And so Wesley Snipes is looking around at all the pictures on the wall. And Sly was just kind of hanging around talking to Joel. He didn't much care about it. And all I can remember is Wesley Snipes repeatedly saying to Joel Silver, he says, oh, this is good, as long as I get to kill a lot of white people, because I want to kill a lot of white people in the movie. And he kept, he kept saying it over and over again in his whole agenda for doing the movie, <laughs> getting to kill a lot of white people. So we know what happened to Wesley Snipes events. He went crazy, you know. You know this, that when we started shooting on the stage, uh, it was time to shoot the character played by uh, Laurie Petty was cast as the lead in that movie. So we shot about three or four days. And after looking at the dailies, Joel Silver said, she's got to go. There was no chemistry at all between her and and the cast, especially Stallone. And so they fired her. And on the lot at the time was a person named Sandra Bullock, who was only known for uh, a movie called Love Potion Number no. 9, I think. She was in that, maybe. And a few other things. But she had been on the Warner Brothers lot because she had just done a film uh, uh, about Ernst Hemingway. One of the reasons why she got the job and, and the executive at the studio at the time was uh, Lorenzo Di Bonaventura, who's a very, very famous person now. He does all the uh, Transformer movies. He's done a, a whole ton of movies since he left Warner Brothers. Very And a very nice guy, a very friendly guy. He suggested her, and one of the things that was a priority was the costumes that that were designed on on the film it came to tens of thousands of dollars. They were quite expensive because it's all in the future. And you've seen her costumes, you know, aside from the the police uniforms and all that. And so uh, Bob Ringwood, who had designed all the Batman movies and continues to design movies, she had to fit in the wardrobe. So as lovely as Sandra Bullock is and as famous as she got to be, and I'm sure she got the bus movie because of Demolition Man, she had to fit in the wardrobe. And she did with some minor adjustments. And that's how she got the job. And she was fabulous in it. She, she's actually one of the best things in the movie. And, and Lori Petty, who I've worked with since, is a wonderful actress, but not in this, not in this movie. You know, and, and and to the point where Joel said some very unkind things about her that were published in, in the in the press, which which I'm not going to repeat. He had that side to him, you know, 
but but at the end of the day, he's like working with a a, a cartoon character, you know. Uh, the other thing, because uh, I've worked with Sly about five times, and you know, he's actually married uh, to my daughter's high school girlfriend, <laughs> who used to come to our house and have sleepovers and all that. So it's his new wife, uh, uh, who's lovely. I knew her, Jennifer, since she was a kid. There were lots of things that had to be looped in the movie because Sylvester Stallone has some sort of speech challenge, which I'm sure is common knowledge. So, uh, and it's, it's probably cruel of me to talk about it. He's a guy that, you know, I'm, I'm sure he can take it, but every day I would go to the set and spend my time and then go and do my thing, you know, running this gigantic crew. We had General Motors give us million dollars, millions of dollars worth of cars, you know, concept cars that came from Detroit and air conditioned trailers. I mean, it was quite amazing. Uh, after Joel, Joel Silver and I had a meeting with the president of General Motors, Oldsmobile division. And the reason that they insisted a car that we use in the movie would be an Oldsmobile was to tell the public that in the year 20, whatever it was, that Oldsmobile would still be around. And of course, it's gone, along with Pontiac, gone. We would watch the dailies, and they would come in VHS cassettes. They'd be delivered to my office. In in the seat, and by the way, you know, the VHS cassette audio and video is not good, so it's hard to hear, hard to watch. It was from the first days of shooting, and it's the scene where Stallone comes into the building that we would eventually, in reality, blow up. We actually blew that building up. And, and he's got the hostages in the building. I had the script with me, and I had my art department in my little office at Warner Brothers. And we're looking at the dailies, and Stallone runs into the room in full commando regalia with a gun. And he screams out what I thought was, where's the sausages? I <laughs> looked it over. <laughs> so did he just say, did he just say, where's the sausages? And we ran the tape back. And again, it's like, where's the sausages? <laughs> so we looked at the script and we finally realized he was, he was saying, where's the hostages? <laughs> and, and, and throughout the entire movie, it was a tagline that everyone repeated, repeatedly <laughs> throughout the film. And every time he said, where's the hostages in the movie, at, at the screening, the entire arts department would burst into laughter, and no one knew why. It, it, it was a pretty good experience, but you can imagine going back-to-back on the Super Mario Brothers and on Demolition Man, because I actually, I only had a few days off, and and the other sad part of it is Jack DeGovia, who was fired, his whole art department that had been working on the movie out of loyalty to Jack DeGovia quit. So in in one way, it was okay. In another way, I brought all my people in. There's sort of a rule in the Art Directors Guild where if you're going to be replaced, like like I, I, I've only been fired once, thank God, it was not a good movie, that you stick around for a week or so to pass on the mantle to the next guy. See, 
But Jack DeGovia being sort of a, a politician with the Art Directors Guild, and he may have even been a president, he, he decided that he would not extend that courtesy to me, which always made me think that he's not really a good guy because it's just not done. You know, you just don't walk away in anger and, and fury and not help one of your brothers or sisters in the art director's guild. So I've never spoken to him since. Uh, I've seen him around at the annual art director's guild awards ball. And I've always felt kind of bad that he uh, took that stance about it. Not, not kosher at all. Well, I want to know uh, what you're working on these days. Right now, I'm in development on several projects that are all based in Canada, China, or New Zealand. A fantasy adventure about three teenage kids uh, living in New Zealand uh, somehow make contact uh, with a rainbow. Uh, and there is some science behind this. It's not all science fiction, but uh, there is there are studies going on now. Uh, weather studies about rainbows and rain and tornadoes and hurricanes, y using them as uh, like a weapon. Sean Connery made a, f a movie about that, you know, weather weaponry, you know, like causing storms and causing these kinds of things. So we did all the research on that and decided to do sort of a fantasy film about it. It's called Into the Rainbow, and the Chinese title is uh, The Wonder Chasing Rainbows. It's going to be released on 32,000 screens in China. I'm taking it to the Savannah Film Festival, and it's going to have its uh, U.S. premiere, and Willow Shields is going to be awarded the Rising Star of the Year Award. And also uh, in the cast are uh, a guy named Julio, who's one of the biggest teenage stars in China, like, like Beatlemania large star with millions of social uh, media followers uh, and uh, a young woman named uh, Jacqueline Joe, who is the star of the Elizabeth Moss television series, Pop of the Lake. The film was shot in 3D by uh, one of Peter Jackson's 3D DPs, but it's a wonderful movie. The cameraman, uh, Richard Bluck, who's an, a New Zealand cameraman, Worked on Avatar, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Rings, The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, King Kong. I mean, amazing credits, amazing credits. Shot the film, and it's wonderful. Uh, I'm looking forward to to that premiere. I can also tell you uh, I'm working on a uh, a mini series based on the great race between the the Natchez and the Robert E. Lee steamboats that took place in uh, 1870 in uh, a race between New Orleans and St. Louis. Uh, it's a 12-episode miniseries. One of the only reasons we're able to do this is because the technology is available because all the steamboats and everything else are going to have to be CGI because it would be, uh, it would be, it would not be cost-effective to try and build two working steamboats. And with what I've seen lately uh, on lots of miniseries, it's so simple to do it now that uh, films that could never be done before 
well, we're going to attempt to do this. And right now we're in pre-production uh, with a, a Canadian production company called Melanie Films. Uh, I just got a script yesterday for uh, a short film uh, to be shot in Bulgaria. Uh, so, yeah, 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 I'm pretty, I guess I'm pretty busy still. Yeah, while you're listening, Rizzo kids killing this, then the bit, silly kids didn't think weird, bring it big, but we kinda did, let me find a brick, lay that down, down to the ground now, it's about time you found out, there's a sound lurking in between the building, certainly discreet, but still we push to be heard, shouldn't be deterred by the fact that people couldn't give a blur, yeah, with hammers and tools, we plan to rule this land, so shake my hand, yo, I'm the demolition man, all right, we are back, and we are talking about Demolition Man. Now, I don't know if you guys had a chance to read the Lenkov version of Demolition Man. It's an interesting take, and it's it's dated. The version that I managed to find was dated 1989, so we're four years before the movie actually comes out. And you know, you, you get those lines like the Joe Gillis line about you know, oh yeah, when I wrote this, it was about skiers, and then it's now set in a U-boat. It's not necessarily that radical of a shift as far as skiing and U-boating, but it is a radical shift between where we're at in Lenkov's 1989 version versus the version that came out in 1993. I mean, it is drastically different. I mean, it's a completely different film. <laughs> I, it's bath. I mean, it's kind of amazing. It, it says a lot. I mean, it kind of explains. It explains why the film feels so like it's straddling genres. It makes sense to me that it, it originated not as a comedy. And then what Daniel Waters says: <laughs> if it's ridiculous, it's mine. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I get it. <laughs> I can totally see that. It's got, to me, kind of like a free jack feel. Like, when our criminals are unfrozen, so kind of the moment when Alex Furlong gets jettisoned into the future, the, what was it, the distant future of 2009, I think that was, or something? <laughs> <laughs> we He get, basically gets jettisoned into a dystopia, like a real hardcore you know, Soylent Green type dystopia. Got Buster Poindexter running around as a greasy cabbie, those kind of things. So it's there's no future utopia. It's all dystopia. And so whatever was bad in the past is almost worse in the future. And so we've got this whole idea of, uh, what is it, Simon Dosey breaking out of prison, killing one of the guards, and then his the other guard, the one guard's partner, is basically the Sandra Bullock character and vows revenge upon Simon Doucet and will go after this guy. And then they have to defrost William Wade to cap capture him. So no John Spartan in that one. And then the bad guy in this, there's a real tenuous connection between the bad guy and William Wade, or sorry, Simon Doucet. And the bad guy is, it's, I mean, we've seen this a thousand times. He's running for mayor. And uh, he used to be a bad cop, but he portrayed himself as a good cop. And he set up William Wade, the John Spartan character, to take a fall and made him seem like he was a bad cop. So they sent him away. 
So, but now the sins of the past are revisiting, and then more kind of sins in the past. The whole idea of this William Wade character, his wife and daughter, are much more prevalent in this one. As you heard in the Daniel Waters version, there was a daughter in the original, in his version of Demolition Man. But that wife and daughter, I mean, they're they're basically, they're kidnap bait, right? You know, this is like a John Woo film from after he came to America. This is, this is face-off territory that we're getting into. But the one cool thing that I liked about it, and tell me what you thought of this, Laura, was the whole idea of the ticking clock. And that once these guys are defrosted, they have to get like shot with something or else their biological clock will just kind of kick into overdrive and they'll get older and older and older. So it kind of like the problem of Simon Phoenix or Simon Doucet in this case almost solves itself because he's getting older rapidly throughout this film and pretty much he'll become a corpse and die by the end of it. I mean, that that is unsettling and... (laughs) sort of uh, strikes the whole thing through with this really dark sense of mortality and just a completely different tone. I mean, I I found that really interesting. I'd like to see the movie that this is, that this would have been, it would have been interesting, but yeah, really unusual. It's not lighthearted. It didn't seem. No, definitely not. And those, they don't call them scraps in this. They call them techno thugs, which is so 1989. (laughs) I I think those guys from Johnny Mnemonic would have been more techno thugs than scraps. The whole idea of John Spartan's daughter is interesting when we think that just uh, uh, 86 is when Aliens came out and the way that they surgically removed Ripley's daughter from Aliens. And they kind of surgically removed John Spartan's daughter in this one in the final version because he doesn't go look for her at all. And to the point where you're just like, well, that's interesting. But the way that the movie moves, the the final product of Demolition Man, I don't ever really think about that. And then when people point out like, oh, yeah, he had a daughter. And some people claim that she's standing next to Dennis Leary at the end uh, when he's uh, giving his little like, you guys get a little dirtier and you guys get a little cleaner. I, I don't really care. It doesn't seem like it's missing to me. I did feel like it was missing. I thought it was weird. I mean, I can see why people think that uh, Sandra Bullock is his daughter. I've heard people say, like, oh, that's, you know, he has sex with his daughter. Like, that's the whole thing. There's this really bizarre, unintentional theory floating around that that's what the film is really saying. But um, it, they do seem, it seems like they're setting it up. And the way they talk about it in the car, I can completely see why people think that. And then there's that moment in, at the end where there's a really brief shot of Stallone protecting somebody. I was like, who is that? And I was reading online, and I think that's her. It's like a split second. As fast as uh, little Eddie comes up in Hudson Hawk, or not quite that fast? <laughs> no. Uh, it's just uh, someone where I was like, that, I don't recognize that character. Why is Sylvester Stallone protecting her? It makes sense. I was convinced, and it took Dan Waters to kind of talk me out of it, but I was convinced that there was a whole subplot with Jesse the Body Ventura because you don't put Jesse the Body Ventura in a movie, you know, post Running Man and and Predator, and you don't have him as a major minor character. I mean, come on, that was so weird. Yeah, and disappointing. <laughs> you put him in the intro credits. I, I was looking forward to that. 
he had so much to offer. And I liked, <laughs> I liked that moment when uh, we've got uh, Simon Phoenix has unfrozen a bunch of thugs. And then he does his, again, to me, very much a Joker speech where he's talking about, you know, the one man who put us all away is here and we're going to take him out. You know, it really felt like the Legion of Doom is getting together and they're going to take out Superman or, or Batman in this case. And all those guys just looking like a total rogues gallery. I'm surprised they didn't all have like a gimmick. Like one guy had a robotic eye or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it was the Lenkov version. I think it was an earlier version of the water script or one of the water scripts. Because it sounds like he got a couple chances at this after talking to Fred Decker. Edgar Friendly in that one was named Thomas Payne, P-A-Y-N-E. And that's funny to me. I know that it's actually a reference to Thomas Paine, P-I-N-E, uh, one of you know the, the founding fathers kind of thing, um, or an influence on the founding fathers. But of course, my mind immediately went to Thomasina Paine, who's the leader of the resistance in Death Race 2000. And <laughs> this is totally... It's very similar to Death Race 2000. You know, it's like this whole idea of this underground group trying to disrupt the the upper echelon and stuff. But at least in Death Race 2000, again with Sylvester Stallone, yeah. we mm-hmm. it's not very much a utopian society. It is a utopian dystopia because they pretend like everything is okay and they have this great release by having this death race throughout the country but we know for sure that things aren't really supposed to be this way whereas when we see in demolition man it's like oh things people think that this is nice and they seem to be enjoying it and like the average guy on the street probably doesn't know that he's living in a hellscape of you know swear machines and you know robotic sex and stuff though i i would be open to having sex with Sandra Bullock with one of those like brain scan things. <laughs> I don't know. It looked really unpleasant to me. It's weird. It was like the last time I watched it for this show was the first time I realized that Stallone was meant to be uh, having like experiencing pleasure. Is he? I think he's supposed to be. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I think he's really bad at doing sex stuff. <laughs> There's only two movies apart from the softcore porn movie he made. But there's only two movies, I think, where he's shown in any kind of sexual way. It's this and the specialist. I don't find it pleasant to watch. <laughs> yeah, I can't really think of him being too sexy in too many things. He kisses someone in Rambo First Blood Part 2, and then she immediately is killed. That's, <laughs> I think that's the answer <laughs> right there. Did you guys listen to the audio commentary for this? This was a weird audio commentary for me. Chris, what happened to Joel Silver? He just, uh, I'm thinking he got up and left. I, I realized at the end when he signed off, and I'm like, well, there were two people at the beginning, and I couldn't tell you at what point in the commentary he stopped talking. It's early. But it's... there are so many commentaries where weird stuff happens, like people get mad at other people, and you can sort of hear it, and you know they've stopped it, and restarted it with that person out of the room and just who knows that's a commentary i would want to hear commentary about what happened during their commentary i'm trying to remember there was one commentary i was listening to recently where somebody just like stopped by and it was like oh you know here's this guy and they 
brought him in. It sounded like they were in a trailer and they brought the guy in and he talked for a few minutes. He's like, Hey, I got to go. And they're like, okay, see ya. <laughs> I, I kind of almost wish that Joel Silver was like, listen, babe, I got a meeting going on across town. I got a jet. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you hear the door slam. Like you, you could almost do like the old timey radio thing of like Joel Silver, like door slam. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, he just, fades out of existence yeah the commentary about the commentary the meta commentary i love it and that would work even within the context of the movie i think um i was talking about the the foreshadowing of phoenix and his conditioning and all that but the other one that i forgot was um when they greet each other they do that hand out almost touch in a circle kind of motion no one touches anyone else ever except for simon of course so the sex scene shouldn't really have been a surprise, but it, but, but it is. But then when you go back, you're like, Oh, everybody has their own personal space and no one violates that. It's, it's, it's a, just something, something interesting. I noticed. I noticed Jack Black. I didn't notice him this time. Where was he again? Is he one of the scraps? He's one of the scraps and he's literally just in the background. <laughs> was, was that Jack Black? And I thought, there's no way. And I looked it up. It's Jack Black. I know I mentioned brain scan earlier because the thing kind of looks like brain scan. But (laughs) I almost got a real strong cocoon vibe out of that sex scene. Anybody else? No. No? Do you know what sex scene? The the Gutenberg sex scene. Yeah. Which I just love saying those words together. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Maybe it's just me then. All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. my steak, Balance. Well, you heard him, dude. Pick it up. I said you, Liberty. You pick it up. And the man who shot him was justifiably destined to become a hero. Yet, strangely enough, only one of these people could be sure he knew the identity of the man who shot Liberty Balance. Now, you stay out of this, Donovan. He's been hiding behind your gun long enough. You got a choice, dishwasher. Either you get out of town, or tonight you'll be out in that street alone. gun in his hand, didn't you? I didn't say that. That ain't murder, Mr. Marshall. That's a clean-cut case of self-defense. Now get out of my way. 
be back next week with a discussion of the man who shot liberty valance who shot liberty valance he was the greatest of them all until then i want to thank this week's co-host chris and laura chris is that outside of the cinema podcast is that still going yeah uh you know despite my best attempts to not show up to record the show um we are going strong and uh next year we're gonna hit 10 years i think holy shit is it i don't even know we passed 500 i think a while ago i don't pay attention to what number episode i just make sure i've watched the two movies one other plug i would like to get in please um i my friend frank and i uh have the original movie game and uh, it's at the original movie and we actually have eight trivia nights for anybody you know relatively local at the o'neill theater in Littleton, Massachusetts, uh, every Wednesday in May and June at seven o'clock. Wow! So yeah, Frank set that whole thing up. He's done a great job. Now I just have to get over my social anxiety and show up. You know, you do well behind a microphone. Maybe you just yes. like wear a mask or something. Oh, way too hot. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. they could sex pistols the whole thing for just put up a curtain. I'll just I'll just sit behind the curtain. What's that sex pistols or was that Public Image Limited? Probably both. Okay. <laughs> it sounds know. like a very John Lydon thing to do regardless. It is, but I, you know, I don't want to be a jerk, so I won't do that. You ever get the feeling you've been cheated? <laughs> Laura, you had some very exciting news today. Can you share that with our listeners? Uh, my book is available for pre-order on Amazon. It's called Alice in Pornerland, Hardcore Encounters with the Victorian Gothic. And your news today was, you're like, what, number one pre-order or something? Yeah, in porn studies. So that's probably me and no one else. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm number one, man. That's all that matters. That's right. Yeah, I love reading your Facebook feed, not just for the Sylvester Stallone, (laughs) but also because you have no problem sharing some of the great observations from your students in your porn studies class. It is fantastic. Yeah, they're great. I love them. They go in with eyes wide open and uh, it's nice to see. I mean, I've been studying pornography for so long and now I get to see these little freshmen being exposed to the weird world of porn. If I was to look at your syllabus, what might I see on there? Um, We start with Deep Throat, obviously, and then we work our way through stuff like uh, Devil and Miss Jones, Opening a Misty Beethoven, and then through to Gregory Dark. He's now an MTV music video director, but back in the day he made The Devil and Miss Jones 3, and we also watch a bunch of uh, Gonzo by Mason, Porn Fidelity. We kind of skip the 90s, I'll be honest. Now, I like Devil and Miss Jones 3, but if I'm going to do Greg Dark, it is going to be all about the new wave hookers. Yeah, but you can't watch the full version. Well, you can't. Not in class, anyway. (laughs) I did give a presentation on Tracy Lords. That explained it awful then. 
it's out there. Yeah, I know. Or you can go right to White Chicks. Or is it Black Chicks? Both. Okay, I thought he did both. But the song, the song. Oh, oh yeah. It's great. Yes. One of my favorites. <laughs> so where can people pick up your new book? They can get it on Amazon for pre-order right now. It comes out in October. They can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Rambet, like Rambo, but feminine. <laughs> Very nice. And Chris, where can people pick up the movie game? Uh, the original movie or on Amazon. Wow. Sounds like an Amazon trip is in somebody's future around here. <laughs> well, thank you so much guys for being on the show and thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.